Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It is Friday, September 27th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. dancing today today on the program it's another romana rundown with sometimes editor romana hussein we're talking national politics with political analyst meredith shiner and the heartland mamas are back i repeat the heartland mamas are back murray Briel and heidi henry and now your host Heartland Papa, <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this when you're right. You're right. Friday. And here's why. So, D, I took my uh, break from my obsession with all things whistleblower gate today to read Bill Ruthart's front page story in today's Tribune. Here it is. Excellent story. Good job, Ruthart. About it's not sh- about sports, is it? Uh, no, it's not about okay, sports. Good. Uh, no, it good. Would, uh, that would have been on the sports page. Uh, anyway, know. how about those bears? Reset 2020. Sorry, I got distracted there. Anyway, um, it's about the striking auto workers in Michigan. As you know, they've been on strike for a couple of weeks now, or maybe 10 days or so. Uh, they voted overwhelmingly to walk, to set up the picket lines. Essentially, they're demanding uh, wage hikes and benefits uh, in lieu of the concessions they've made down through the years that have kept uh, the auto industry alive. So they're uh, taking it one step at a time. They start with General Motors, and obviously uh, that will uh, set the prototype for contracts to come with the other uh, large auto manufacturers. Here's the thing, politically speaking. A sizable chunk of these auto workers voted for Donald John Trump in 2016, and more to the point, they say they're going to vote for him again in 2020. This is according to Bill Ruthard's story. Ready, set, 2020. <laughs> no, they Blue say they say they're going to vote for him in 2020. Not ready, set, 2020. Anyway, blew my mind, Dr. D. You know, I mean, I'm I'm used to irrational behavior on the part of voters. I mean, I've been covering the Chicago electorate since 1981, and I'm always watching Chicago voters do something against their best interests, vote against their best interests, vote for politicians who raise their taxes, throw the money away and say they're not raising their taxes. So I understand irrationality on the part of voters, but this one is really irrational. I mean, Donald Trump has done nothing, absolutely nothing, for striking auto workers in Michigan or striking auto workers anywhere. He has not used his massive power of the tweet to tweet out support. I think he had one tweet that was mildly supportive. You know how Donald Trump could go if he really wants to tweet out support, but he's been quiet on the tweet front. No uh, collusion. <laughs> uh, he hasn't. 
He hasn't come to Michigan to walk the picket line with them. You know, that would have been unbelievable. You imagine all the attention that would have received if Donald John Trump walked the picket line with them. No, 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 no. Hasn't done any of his little sneaky moves like retaliatory threats against General Motors uh, if they don't bend. You know, like he would like he hasn't treated them like he treats the president, let's say, of the Ukraine. Uh, you know, hey, if you want that $425 million, you got to take care of uh, an investigation into Joey Biden. You got it. Uh, uh. Uh, so if, you, the, if you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75 percent in value. And they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, OK? Uh, I forgot that. Anyway, hasn't done any of that. Here he is lending his massive uh, tweet speaking power to destroying windmills. Hasn't even done anything remotely like that on behalf of striking auto workers. So there's no rhyme or reason uh, why any of them would support him. It's more a case like that they apparently like his style. Like he's nasty. He's crude. He makes fun of people that they don't like. And apparently that's good enough. Meanwhile, according to Ruthart, Democratic candidates are flocking to Michigan, streaming up to the state to stand on the picket line with the striking workers. Uh, be Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, uh, Joe Biden is going to show up there. And it's sort of like, by and large, many of the striking workers, the Donald Trump supporters, hold it against the Democrats. It's like the Democrats are just doing it because it's the politically correct thing to do, to stand with them and support them. And so they're phonies, and so they're not going to vote for them. I, like I said, I think I found a group of voters more irrational in their behavior than the ones I've been covering forever in the city of Chicago. But I will add this. According to Ruth Hart, the one Democrat that these striking workers seem to appreciate is one Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. And when you think about it, D, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, definitely in ideology and policy, couldn't be more different and yet, the workers who like Trump like Sanders. They think he's for real. He may be a little off the mainstream. He may be uh, uh, definitely not central casting type of your typical presidential candidate. He's got wild, unruly hair that never seems to be combed. His tie never seems to be straight. He sort of dresses like I do. But <laughs> Are you describing Bernie Sanders or my uncle? <laughs> Or me, uh, <laughs> Uncle uh, Eldon. Yeah, uh, but now, little Danny, come on. But they like him because he's real. And this reminds me, four years ago, I had a raging debate with a uh, good friend, uh, uh, Mr. Mondragon, El Dragon, Adolfo, and uh, he was saying that Bernie Sanders was better set, set to win that election than Hillary Clinton. Man, we debated that one for, it seems like, weeks and weeks and months and months. He was positive. He was right. I was skeptical. You know, I'm older than Adolfo. I'm still stuck in the old ways, those baby boomer waves where we remember the 1972 election where Nixon swamped McGovern. Uh, but you know what? I have to say, D, I have to come to the conclusion that El Dragon was right. Mm-hmm. And to quote Jack Nicholson from Chinatown, your favorite movie. Love it. When you're right, you're right.
We got a great show today, everybody. Yes, indeed. Romana Saint is in here for the Romana Rundown. Let's see what she has to say about the striking auto workers uh, in Michigan. No, I'm probably going to ask her about, oh, my God, we could have a Chicago Teachers Union strike here in the city of Chicago. Uh, and uh, lots of interesting local news to talk about with Romana Hussein. Uh, Meredith Shiner, political analyst, will be here. Uh, we'll be talking all things whistleblower gate, uh, in a, particularly how this thing she foresees this uh, playing out politically. And then uh, in the final half hour, Oh, yeah, the Heartland Mamas are making a return. Heidi Henry and Murray Brio. Uh, you remember, Heidi is the uh, horse farmer who uh, ran against Sue Resin for state senate in 38. She's unabashedly liberal, New Deal Democrat out in Grundy County, and she's coming into Chicago to give her thoughts on all the issues of the day, including my favorite issue of the day, oh. always my favorite issue, how Democrats can pick up Trump voters uh, in Trump country. So uh, looking forward to hear what the Heartland Mamas have to say about Whistleblower Gate and all the other uh, items in the news. But before we do any of that, the young man from Alton with the news. How's it going, everybody? Name's Dennis. All right. Oh, actually, before we get going here, <laughs> Ben, I noticed something on your thing here. Hold on. You got the buttermilk thing, but it needs to be facing oh, this. Oh, I see. For those wondering. <laughs> yeah. Give me your mind. For those wondering, this is buttermilk, yes, but Ben Jarofsky missing. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. But a, when you don't have it turned, it just looks like we got buttermilk well, hanging out here. Not That's that, weird. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yes. By the way, show the car. Boom. Yeah, boom. <laughs> and the uh, I support musicians. CSO. But we have a few buttons and stuff there other than buttermilk. All right, young man. Thank you for correcting that. Now, uh, what's the news for the day? All right. Let's unpack some of <laughs> News happening in Illinois and or Chicago this afternoon. No Friday public events listed for Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. It's a rainy Friday here in Chicago, a little after 1 p.m. Ben Jarofsky, what do you think J.B. Pritzker is doing on right rainy, now? On a rainy Friday yeah. after lunch? Yeah. He's probably taking a nap. Oh, taking a nap, huh? Mm -hmm. Sleeping. <laughs> really? I would be taking <sighs> Uh, I guess I owe you lunch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... Anything else? Uh, no, no, you probably woke up by now. Up, up. There goes that J.B. Pritzker interview. But we do have some statewide news to discuss. Ben Jarofsky, if you could, please hand me that uh, liquor bottle I put under your table, please. Oh. It's time to celebrate, buddy. Oh, wait, I'll have to celebrate. There you go. Please just commit the to the... buttermilk. <laughs> we have to congratulate our good friend and state senator, or should I say soon-to-be former state senator, Toy Hutchinson. Oh, yeah. She's stepping down from her Senate seat. Now, remember, everyone, come January 1st, 2020, recreational cannabis will be legal in the state of Illinois. And come January 1st, Toy Hutchinson will be settled into her new position. And my God, if this job title doesn't sound like the name of a stoner comedy that I would pay money to see, <laughs> Toy Hutchinson is now the cannabis czar. He could also be a wrestler. Oh, my God. That'd be an awesome wrestler, yeah, too. A pot czar, wrestler. Yeah. Holy crap. Hey, Ben, what's a czar? A czar, man. You know, the leader of Russia in the old days, the, the king of Russia, essentially. Yeah. C-Z-A-R, although it can be spelled with a T, T-S-A-R, but they like to put it with the C in front of cannabis because you got that alliteration, yeah. man. Huh? I went to radio school. Sar Cannabis, or is it Cannabis Sar? Which way do they go? Cannabis Sar. All right, yeah, CC. Okay, so CC I, don't, I don't think you know what a czar is. You said it's like a king or a queen? It's a, yeah, Russia, the Russian monarchs okay. were czars. The following comes from the meanest Illinois political bulldog in the yard. Capital Facts is Richard Miller at CapitalFacts.com. F-A-X like a fax machine, guys. Check it out. It's a great source for Illinois news. One of the worst kept state house secrets this week is that Senator Toy Hutchinson is resigning to oversee implementation of the new cannabis 
cannabis legalization law. She informed Senate President Cullerton yesterday and her law firm today. Hutchinson will oversee the activities of five, count them five, state agencies, agriculture, public health, revenue, DCEO, and the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. She'll also have some sway over the Illinois state uh, police's policies. Governor Pritzker had tried to recruit her into his administration earlier this year, but she declined. Senator Hutchinson uh, told Rich Miller earlier this week that she had two big goals when she became senator. Number one, reform the state income tax code. And number two, legalize weed. She helped to do both this year and said it was time to go. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Toy Hutchinson. Everybody knows that she's been on the show many times. In fact, I think she's going to come on the show next week uh, to talk about her days as a state senator now that she's moving on. A very important job in the state of Illinois. The, the biggest, uh, I think, the, the most, most of the attention will be on the revenue part of the job. You know, how can the state of Illinois make money out of the sale of reefer? But uh, it was interesting to see her comments towards comments in the paper today. She was talking about the, um, the fairness issue, the fact that so many uh, black people over the years have been locked up for smoking marijuana, uh, have been punished for smoking marijuana. By and large, it's, it was legal for white people. They certainly weren't uh, incarcerated at the same rate. Uh, so she's guaranteed guaranteed to make sure that uh, with, that everybody gets to uh, enjoy the benefits of legalizing marijuana in terms of getting the contracts uh, to sell it, et cetera, and so forth. So that'll be a big part of, of, of her job as well. So congratulations to her. And I'm bring her on and get her opinion uh, on whether we should have the exclusion zone. Remember we talked about that last week, the exclusion zone in the loop. Uh, why aren't there any marijuana stores uh, in the loop? See what she has to say about that. But uh, anyway, congratulations, Toy Hutchinson. Hutchinson has served in the Senate since January of 2009. She chairs the Influential Revenue Committee. Uh, she's also the immediate past president of the National Conference of State Legislatures. She became the NCSL's president-elect two years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that speech she gave. She gave a, it was on Instagram. Yeah, Toy Hutchinson's a big deal. Uh, and I think her ultimate uh, place will be in the media. She's a very powerful presence uh, whenever she comes on this show, that's for sure. So I always told her, you know what, Toy? Your future's in the media. But apparently, she's going to be running uh, marijuana in the state of Illinois for, in, in the interim. On to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Come October, I'll address those challenges further in my budget speech. Lori Lightfoot's Friday plans include a morning visit to the Resurrection Project to meet with community members and then giving remarks in the evening at the Cook County Juvenile Temporary Detention Center's Foundations. That's a long title. Mm -hmm. The Cook County Juvenile Temporary Detention Center Foundation's 10th Anniversary Gala. All right, so we've got some good Lori Lightfoot news and some bad. Let's begin with the good. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and one Mitch Dudek. Lightfoot announces amnesty debt relief program for city sticker scoff laws. Ben, how pumped are you for this? I'm, I am pumped. We've talked about this before. It's uh, about time. Good going. Lori Lightfoot. You know, it was a very regressive tax. It was an unfair way to fund government. And I'm glad to see that we're moving away from it. Residents will be allowed to buy a new city sticker with no additional fees or back charges during October, the mayor's office announced today. Mayor Lightfoot announced that beginning November 15th, everyone who is in compliance with their city sticker by October 31st will be eligible to have some or all of their city sticker tickets forgiven. Mm -hmm. It's a new day in Chicago, and we're going to make sure that every single person gets a fair shot at economic opportunity, says the mayor. 
Ben, before we move on here, your thoughts. Well, as I just got finished saying, uh, this was a legacy, a remnant of the ROM days. It was very unfair. Uh, the city's always looking for ways uh, to make more money, to pay its basic bills. So this is essentially squeezing the people who can at least afford to pay uh, by taking away their cars. <laughs> and uh, I, I never understood, uh, well, I, 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 this was in conjunction with like the red light cameras. Uh, it's just a crackdown on just everyday citizens in the city of Chicago, as opposed to exploring more progressive ways to finance government. I never understood uh, why uh, Mayor Rahm and the aldermen would tolerate it, but uh, the city was definitely in a different place uh, back then for the last eight years. So it's good to see uh, Lori Lightfoot uh, is getting rid of it and reforming it. One of the first acts uh, as mayor. All right. For more information and to sign up for the debt forgiveness, visit www.chicago.gov forward slash city sticker debt relief. All right. And now the bad news. All signs are, in fact, pointing to a Chicago Teachers Union strike. In a massive show of unity, the Chicago teachers and support staff voted late Thursday in favor of a walkout. Union officials put the vote at 94% in favor of authorizing a strike. Now, if you're new to Chicago politics, this CTU vote does not mean that they are officially on strike. The union can now announce a walkout date with 10 days notice. The union's 700-member House of Delegates could vote on a proposed strike day at its next meeting October 2nd, which covers the education beat full-time. Oh, that is the uh, from Chalkbeat. This comes from Chalkbeat. The earliest a strike could occur is October 7th. Mayor Lightfoot, who said a walkout would be catastrophic, joined Chicago Public Schools CEO Janice Jackson and stated uh, that, quote, that they are committed to doing everything we can to finalize a deal that is sustainable for all Chicagoans and for our city's future, that respects our teachers and continues our students' record-breaking success for years to come. Ben Jarofsky, give us your forecast here. Can a deal be reached by October 7th? Yes, a deal can be reached by October 7th. Don't know if a deal will be reached by October 7th. I was really wrong the last time uh, we we had a big time strike in Chicago. That would have been 2012 where I was going around predicting there would not be a strike because back then, if you, if you recall, we were in the middle of Barack Obama's re-election campaign and I had, I had this feeling there was no way that Barack Obama's campaign would allow his former White House chief of staff, Mayor Rahm, uh, to oversee a, a, a teacher strike on the eve of the re-election run. Boy, was I wrong. Uh, that strike was uh, lasted, what was it, eight days, seven days, something like that. And uh, in in the end, uh, the teachers and Rom cut a deal. Uh, but uh, so I was wrong in that, in that one. I would think that there's, they could, they could cut a deal here. The The big issue in this um, particular standoff has to do, it seems to me, it has to do with jobs, much the same way we talked about with the nurses at University of Chicago and the uh, striking, uh, excuse me, the teachers want guarantees in the contract. They want it in their contract uh, that uh, certain uh, what they call wraparound service jobs uh, be protected by union contracts. So you're talking about librarians, social workers, nurses, etc. And I would think that Lori Lightfoot would want would want to be viewed as what the great champion for um, 
correcting uh, these shortages. These shortages, it's its a shame on the city of Chicago that we've had these shortages for so years. So many of our educators come on the show. We talk about how there's more kids per nurse in the city of Chicago than any district in the state of Illinois or many of the, it's one of the worst in the state of Illinois. And so I would think that Lori Lightfoot would want to be the, the mayor who said, I was the one who um, who ended this uh, this inequity. So it would be, in my humble opinion, in her political best interest to take the lead on this. But so far, she's been reluctant to put it in the contract. And that seems to be uh, where the standoff is. So I think, to answer your question, there's plenty of room for them to cut a deal. Not so sure that they'll get it done. All right, everybody. So that's what's going on locally. Feel free to weigh in on the YouTube live stream chat with your thoughts or on the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page. Speaking of the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page, right now I am posting your latest work on the Chicago mm. Reader, Ben. Uh, this article it looks like you were inspired by our uh, weekend bonus interview uh, last week with one Robert Hergeth because this week's uh, Chicago Reader article titled The Hergeth Files. Yes. Tell us all about it. Well, uh, I had a lot of fun with this. Okay, Bob Hergeth was on the show. He's a Sun-Times investigative reporter. Had a lot of fun with this article uh, in many ways. And uh, Hergeth has taken it upon himself. I, 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 I say it's like his hobby. And he has been uh, soliciting uh, files from the FBI on people who have died from prominent Chicagoans, uh, infamous Chicagoans and famous Chicagoans. So he's got gangsters, mobsters, uh, street gang leaders. uh, And then he's got prominent politicians like mayor, former mayor Richard J. Daley, former alderman Leon Dupre. Uh, He's got writers, Mike Royko, Studs Terkel, uh, Ernest Hemingway is in there as well. So he's gathered all of these files. uh, And each time he talks about this uh, in the bonus interview, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. It's just not a matter of routine asking for a file you have to send an official FOIA you have to Freedom of Information Act request and then in some cases some bureaucrat at the FBI responds by saying well are you sure this person's dead so then you have to establish uh, that the person is dead uh, which is kind of a bizarre thing to do it's like someone was born in 1895 you figured they would have passed uh, anyway uh, so he's been gathering I think he's 125 uh, maybe there's more by now 125 files which he dutiful, uh, dutifully puts on the internet you can find it right here at the chicago sun times and uh so after he was done with our interview and talking about this hobby of his uh i then spent way too much time i was just talking to brian about this d way too much time over the weekend uh, plowing through the site and looking at all these files and i have to tell you folks if you're going to do this i'm going to warn you it's a pdf file and so it's just pictures images of the documents themselves so you're looking on your screen uh and there's a lot of redacted uh, information there's a lot of empty pages so you know you just constantly are are getting um the, the going after one page after one page and after a while it's like i guess started getting car sick a little bit i had to like take a break from it uh but then you know i i take a break and i'd be curious i'd come back why was the fbi spying let's say on Ernest Hemingway. Why were they collecting a file on uh, Mike Royko or Studs Terkel or Leon Dupre? And in many cases, I don't even know if spying is uh, the best word to use. And in some cases, for instance, like Mike Royko's case, what happened is, is that somebody threatened Royko. Uh, Mike Royko, by the way, for you youngsters, was 
one of, probably the greatest columnist who ever worked in the city of Chicago. He died in the 1997. He worked for the Sun-Times, the Daily News, and the Tribune. But anyway, he was the greatest columnist who, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, whoever uh, came out of the city of Chicago. Anyway, so what happened was that Royker wrote something controversial, and a reader... Uh, sent in a death threat or made some kind of threat and the, the newspaper turned it over to the FBI and the FBI did an investigation and that opened up a file and once the file is open anything having to do with Mike Royko uh, is put in that file and so then fast forward someone uh, wrote a read a Mike Royko column in 1969 where Royko was criticizing the FBI and so uh, this person wrote a letter, a fan letter to J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI himself. I like, you know, saying, I think you would, I, I, you, you ought to see this column. It's like he was a tattletale on Mike Royko. And then the letter goes on to say, by the way, I really admire you. You're wonderful. Could you send me a autographed photo? He's re- making this request of J. Edgar Hoover that I would like to put over uh, my fireplace. And then, so then you have in the file, J. Edgar Hoover's, a copy of J. Edgar Hoover's response. Of, Thank you for sending this to me. I am sending you uh, uh, the autographed uh, photo that you requested, etc., and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, this is the stuff that gathers in a file. And there's no evidence in the Mike Royko file that the, the FBI was listening uh, to Royko's phones or reading his mail or anything like that. But it was as though, you know, somebody's watching somebody's collecting the information the information is stashed away uh the question i asked is is this all the information let's say on someone like mike royko i i don't know the answer to that question it's the only information that they turned over uh to bob hergus or are they leaving out goodies like that show that they were uh spying on him i don't know there's a part of me that thinks they are uh i have no proof of that but i'm just a suspicious guy and then in other instances like for instance in the case of studs turkle the the famous uh uh, writer and uh, activist studs was very much an activist uh, promoting integration way way back before it was fashionable or popular i don't know if it ever has been fashionable or popular but talking about in the 40s and the 50s etc and he's been uh, uh, active in the anti-war movement uh, when he was alive of course and um so it, it, there would be informants at various meetings where Studs Terkel uh, spoke. And so part of the files, uh, part of the reports in his files would be reports based on the intel of these informants who would say Studs Terkel. So the FBI agent would write, our informant said that Studs Terkel spoke and they would quote a little bit about him. So there's evidence that they were, uh, the FBI was actively following, spying, if you will, uh, on activists in the city of Chicago. So it's sort of a mixed bag. It's an interesting combination of this, that, and the other thing. And very clearly, the FBI uh, was paying attention, to put it mildly, with what, um, ooh, what, how do I put this, what Chicago's left uh, was up to. And so that, in the case of Studs Terkel, they were following him. And the, the thing on that, Ernest Hemingway was pretty funny. Ernest Hemingway wanted to be an FBI informant. This was back in the 40s when he was living in Cuba. Uh, he wanted to be an FBI informant and tell the FBI what he, you know, incident, like he, he claimed he saw a, a German submarine off the coast of Havana or something. And he was worried that the Germans were about to uh, invade the United States or send in uh, some kind of infiltrators or spies. The United States, and so he was. He was 
warning the FBI of this, and the FBI was skeptical uh, about his information. They didn't trust him. Uh, so that was a funny thing. When, here's the FBI spying on people, and then when someone wants to spy on their behalf, they don't know if they trust him. So a uh, little hodgepodge of information uh, in, in Bob Hergut's FBI files. Uh, I saw somewhere, I think I, he just added a new name. This is after... Um, after I read through, I can't remember. I think I saw it in the paper today. So he's continually updating the files, and I'll probably let a couple weeks go by and take another deep dive. Once again, it's the Hergeth Files, Bendrovsky's latest article in the Chicago Reader. Check it out now, chicagoreader.com. It's also on our Facebook page, at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show, as well as our Twitter page with the same handle. Romano Hussein is in studio. Coming up next, we're going to be doing the Romano Rundown. Don't go anywhere. It's the Bendrovsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture, food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Attention Chicago innovators and creators, 2019 Chicago Ideas Week is coming soon. October 12th through the 17th, this annual Ideas Festival is back, and it's the largest, most affordable Ideas Festival of its kind. They bring in hundreds of thought leaders from around the globe and some local to share ideas and spark action all across Chicago. To get a better idea of what to expect, here's a bit of audio from last year's Chicago Ideas Week with special guest and Chicago comedian Cameron Esposito. Everything that I have ever tried to do has had two motivations. One is I really do believe in trying to create social change. And then the other one is I'm scared and alone too. So I would like for you to join me. You know, every job that I have, I try to make sure to hold the door open. That's like my uh, motto for, for, um, like if I get through, you're coming with me. And I really, I believe in that wholeheartedly. And, uh, especially if I have more privilege than you, like I'm holding the door open for you, um, even wider. October 12th through the 17th, it's 2019 Chicago Ideas Week. Tickets go on sale to members on August 22nd and to general public September 10th. Once again, if you're an innovator or creator in the city of Chicago or even outside the city, you must join us for Chicago Ideas Week, October 12th through the 17th. For tickets and event information, head to chicagoideas.com. That's chicagoideas.com. And we hope to see you October 12th through the 17th for 2019 Chicago Ideas Week. Hey, podcast fans, that's you, the people listening to this podcast. The team at the Chicago Sun-Times have a new show to add to your listening lineup. This football season, get the inside scoop on the Chicago Bears with Hallis Intrigue. It's the latest podcast from the Chicago Sun-Times, and boy, it is all things Chicago Bears. Tune in to hear Sun-Times sports reporters and Bears experts a ton of them, as they will keep you informed this football season. Listen to Hallis Intrigue at suntimes.com forward slash Hallis. That's suntimes.com forward slash H-A-L-A-S. And be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Check it out now, suntimes.com forward slash 
Hallis, welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Ramana Hussein in the studio. It's the Ramana Rundown every Friday uh, on our show. Ramana, so many things to talk about. Uh, let's start with Whistleblower Gate. Uh, and I thought you would be a perfect person to run this by. We've been talking about Whistleblower Gate for the last three days. Just people who are just do not know it by and large or you should know it but whatever uh the unnamed whistleblower at least as, as of yet he's been unnamed or she uh it, apparently it's a cia analyst uh, who works in the white house uh and got wind of the fact that donald trump was on the phone with the president uh of ukraine in which donald trump was saying hey uh, if, essentially we do things for you so you should do things for us and one of the things we do for you he didn't say it but it was veiled in there was we give you 400 million dollars in military aid and one of the things you can do for us is to look into joe biden and uh and you'll see if there's any truth to the fact that he, he and his son were up to no good uh in the ukraine uh in other words uh, he was digging for dirt uh it, with a foreign leader trying to get a foreign leader uh to do the dirty work for the republican party uh digging up dirt on an opponent uh like he hadn't learned from 2016 he got in trouble same thing with hillary and the russians anyway bottom line of course now we're talking impeachment uh and my question for you and i'd love to get your thoughts on this one is i want to know like how does that fit in with the behavior of people who've really been punished and there's two people I can think of right now. One who's in the subject of an investigation, we'll get to her, Kim Fox for Justice Smollett Gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's talk about Blago. I'm trying to figure out, Governor Blago is now spending, I think he's 14 years. 14 years so he's got, forget how many years are left uh, on his sentence. For, I don't even know if he made the calls himself. Uh, it seems to me that Donald Trump was a lot more blatant. Uh, you could say it's sort of a shakedown extortion if you will than blago ever was what's your thoughts on all this yeah i think it's it's pretty interesting and first of all you know how you called it the ukraine i read somewhere that's ukraine now oh did i so, say the yeah ukraine? yeah i don't know but i think it's just a habit it's a habit everyone has and um but we, you're right we should just say ukraine <laughs> my cousin was married to a former ukrainian woman so i learned a little russian when, you're right i'm looking it up in the paper yeah. it's no the it's uh, no the but anyway um i i i, I just think it's Donald Trump has done many things. I guess I think a lot of people would say, is this really surprising that this happened? But I guess in this case, it's like Blagojevich was talking to a lot of people. I mean, the, we have the you know the recordings that the Tribune had had. Um, you remember that with Pritzker talking mm, oh about yeah. it. <laughs> um, and Absolutely. Do I remember? Oh, my yeah. goodness. We talked about that for a long time. It's it's definitely um, something that was unethical and criminal. With Donald Trump, he's using a foreign power to investigate someone, and he also offered. Didn't he also offer the services of Rudy Giuliani yes. and um, William, William Barr. Barr? Yes. It's 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 shocking. But then again, part of me is like, are, are, is anybody really shocked? I, I don't know. I think it's definitely something that needs to be investigated. What will happen? That's the question. I mean, he, you know, people are calling for impeachment hearings, but what does being impeached mean? Does it mean he'll he'll be in office? I don't know. I don't know. You know, obviously this seems, you know, for people who are following what Donald Trump has been doing the last few years since he's been office, I don't think should be a shocker to people, but I still think it is in a way. It's like, God, just when you thought things couldn't get crazier, <laughs> it gets crazier. 
So I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's definitely uh, if if this is what happened, I think it's something that needs to be looked into. Will Donald Trump be the first president to be impeached and removed from office? I don't know. No, I can guarantee you. I don't I'm think, gonna be, we're gonna be he about won't it. be. He won't be. I, be, I me and my um, <laughs> some of my family members are talking about. It. Well, by the time the impeachment hearings take place. It's it was like term will be gone. Well, we're, we're going to be uh, talking about that later with Meredith Shiner, political analyst. Uh, we're going more into detail about the schedule and how it uh, mm-hmm. impacts the election cycle, et cetera, and so forth, and what the Republicans are going to do and all that. Uh, but the thing that intrigued me from the local level and, and, and is the way in which we've become so partisan in our reactions yeah, to true. what goes on in events. And so you think that in the abstract, there would be behavior by a politician that Democrats and Republicans could together come together and say, this is outrageous. And that happened with Bogoyevich. Democrats and Republicans together, they ran him out of office so fast. Uh, well, and, it doesn't seem like that's happening in the White House. No. There's and a two uh, reactions, a Republican reaction and a Democratic and, reaction. And that's what it just it just makes me it just I, I always keep thinking, like if Barack Obama did this. Would the reaction from the Republicans be the same? I mean, I, I don't know if you I don't know if you're on Twitter a lot, but Lindsey Graham was trending a couple of days ago. And, you know, I think he was just kind of blowing this off. And then I think people were tweeting what he said when Bill Clinton, when the impeachment hearings of Bill Clinton were taking place. And he's like, you don't even have to, you know, perform a you know criminal act to be impeached. And he was getting all like vociferous about it. So it's just very interesting. And, you know, I, I grew up. I mean, I kind of came of age in the 80s, and I just remember just remember thinking everybody was so anti-Soviet Union, you know, and especially the Republicans. My, my, um, my, one of my uncles, my maternal uncles in India is a communist, so I never thought communism was that big of a deal growing up because I was like, I didn't think it was something, I didn't think it was a bad word necessarily because it was one of my favorite uncles. But um, wow, times have changed that you would feel free to say that. And you know, back in the eighties, <laughs> nobody well, would. Oh, my uh, uncle is a communist. <laughs> he's, he's a very well, he's a very he's a very proud communist. He has like the flag, and you know, he always says he has to wear red, like a piece of like material that's red. I mean, I I, I've had arguments with him because I don't necessarily think communism works, but I don't think it's a dirty word. I guess. Yeah. So I remember growing up and watching movies like Rambo and. You know, other movies that had, you know, the evil people were the so you know people from the, the Soviet communists. Union. So I, I I just think it's really interesting that you know the right wingers were the ones that were just ripping on you know Soviet Union the most, and now it's like oh yeah whatever who cares you know he asked for the help from Ukrainians whatever who yeah, cares yeah. and it's like doesn't it make anybody think like okay so he went to a foreign power to well, look into. And a po- political opponent? That's just really bizarre. Second I don't know. Time around. Really bizarre. Second time around. And yeah, I know. I know. I know. Second time around. I know. And, and it was funny. Can he go to a different country? I don't know. I, I have a lot of fun reading, uh, as you know, the the Tribune's uh, editorial page. And so what got me thinking of the, the obvious contracts, they, they've they now weighed in twice. And I've read them both. Uh, and I think I should get like extra pay for having read the Tribune's editorial on this. But uh, their attitude was, it's wrong. What he did was wrong. But they could find nothing in there, no uh, evidence of a quid pro quo. So in other words, it wasn't explicit. He didn't say, uh, all right, you want that 450 million? I'll give you the 450 if you do the investigation. He suggested it. So I just find that. It's just that the legal... 
It's kind of like Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton arguing about the word is. Yeah. So I just find it interesting that <laughs> no, they're so liberal minded and they, they needed more proof with this. I don't believe Blago ever personally got on a phone and said, you want that state contract? You got to give me X, Y, Z. I don't believe they ever got Blago saying that. And yet, just imagine the tribute. Just imagine if Blago had made this phone call <laughs> or Madigan had made this phone call what, with the tribute's reaction. So that's what I'm saying. I just feel as though um, our, our country has lost sense of like judging right and wrong. No, it's true. And, and you know, you mentioned Kim Fox. Yes. And that's similar with Kim Fox, too. I mean, I, I don't... You know, there's people who don't like her on the right, and then there's people who love her on the left, and the people on the left don't, they're like, oh, okay, who cares? <laughs> you know, with the smaller thing. I'm not saying everybody. I shouldn't say everybody on the left, but there are people, I have heard people on the left say, you know, there's bigger deals, and nobody's saying that's not a big deal. It's about the integrity of the office. It has nothing to do with the Smollett case itself, which I think gets lost in some of the arguments. And then there's people way to the right and then you know there's the the FOP where you know they don't like anything that she does so this is just a chance for them to kind of jump up from what I've seen. Absolutely. I I do not I didn't want to make this clear. I do not equate what Kim Fox oh, may or may not. not. No, have no, no, done no, no. Not to what Donald Trump minor case or Blagojevich. Yeah, or yeah. To Donald Trump. But your point is very well taken. It's like the response uh the, the 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 law and order uh, response to Kim Fox that this is an outrage must be being investigated. People are already running against her. Uh, this you know this, yeah. this is a sign that she's not uh, she should no longer be our state's attorney. I'm like, where's the outrage about exactly. Donald Trump? Well, it's kind of like you and Rom, I guess. I love Rom. <laughs> I, mean, I love saying, Rom. What, what do you mean? I, I, I'm just saying, like, if Rom did something, would you treat Lori the same way if she did the same thing? Ah, good question. Would that's I what, treat? That's, that's what I'm just saying. Well, I'm just saying when people have a distrust for someone, then yeah. I think I'm an equal opportunist. I mean, I, there's people I like, and I still think they should be held accountable. Uh, yes. And actually, we had, it was funny. We had an interview yesterday. Uh, Dan Savage was on the show yesterday. Oh, yeah. I saw that. And uh, he uh, he's, he's from Chicago, but he doesn't live in Chicago. His dad's a cop. Was a cop. You know, he, I think, didn't he mention that, day that his dad was a cop? It was a very interesting, he talked about his mom a lot and, and his upbringing. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I, so I asked him about Rom. What's his thoughts on Rom? Now, Dan Savage has lived in Seattle th- for, I don't know, the last 20 years at mm-hmm. least. So he hasn't been here for Rom. And so he was just looking as an outsider. And he his immediate reaction to Rom, with, without having followed what's yeah. gone on, is uh, that he appreciates the toughness that Rahm has, he wishes more Democrats were like that. And my attitude toward that is, I agree with you. I wish more Democrats were tough like Rahm. I wish Rahm, however, wouldn't apply his toughness to other Democrats, would apply it more to Republicans. That's my problem with Rahm. Uh, but yeah, no, I... Um, uh, I you're, you make a good point. We all we all kind of bring. Yeah, our and, I, and maybe to you know I'm I'm trying to say that I'm so fair. Maybe I'm like that too. And that that's maybe. human nature. Oh my maybe. god. <laughs> maybe it's human nature. I guess. Oh my god. All right. Let's 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 give a test to that. Um, let's talk about President Modi's appearance uh, in uh, Houston. God. Uh, I, I told I told our politics desk about that, and it was kind of like yawn. 
But but no, Lynn Sweet did call me and she told me she was surprised that um, Raja Krishnamurthy was there. Um, I was looking at pictures and uh, I saw that uh, Danny Davis was there as well. Um, just to, for people who don't know who Narendra Modi is, he is the Prime Minister of India, but he used to be this. Uh, he used to be the head of. Um, he used to rule things in the state of Gujarat. I forgot what is. I think he, I don't know. I don't want to call him the governor. He might have been the. Well, he was the head guy in Gujarat when the um, massacres happened. I think it was early 2000s. And uh, there was riots, communal tension. And Talk was, about the massacres. A lot of people the don't massacres. know what you're talking there about. Was a, there was, um, you know, India is a majority Hindu country. And there's a, many minorities in, in the country as well. There's one billion people in India. So a lot of people forget that there are still, even though India, uh, you know, when India the independence, Pakistan became its own country, Bangladesh became its own country. Pakistan and Bangladesh are Muslim majority countries. There's a lot of bloodshed, but people don't realize that there was a lot of Muslims that stayed back. So Muslims are the largest minority in India. And then there's been a rise of nationalism in India, which is becoming very, very anti-Muslim. Um, you know, Hindus rever, rever, revere the cow. Um, Muslims are meat eaters. Um, so now people who are suspected of even eating beef, um, a lot of them are getting lynched across the country. And so people feel like Modi. So there was, there was a, there's been communal tension that flares up every so often. You know, people get along. I mean, I, my mom grew up with mostly Hindu friends. My, my communist uncle that I mentioned, his friends are all Hindu. Um, all the politicians in town where um, he lives. But anyway, there's once in a while, the communal tension takes place. So there was, um, what happened was there was these riots that started after, I think the, there were some Muslims that killed some Hindus on a train, I believe. It was some sort of train incident. But then there's a retaliation for that. And a lot of Muslims were killed. And uh, Modi, who was the head of Gujarat at the time, kind of uh, the allegations are that he turns his cheek and didn't really care and kind of told cops to turn around and not pay attention. So he was banned from coming to the United States for years until Donald Trump came into office. And so um, a lot of people compare what happened, what's happening in India. The rhetoric that's happening in India is the same as the rhetoric that's happening in the United States, especially against Muslims. So anyway, um, in Houston, Modi came for a rally which we were just talking about. Raja Krishnamurthy was there. Danny Davis was there. And the guest star was Donald Trump. They walked hand in hand. <laughs> yes. And I heard, I don't know if this is true. I saw it on Twitter uh, that they showed a picture of Martin Luther King and Gandhi while these two were talking to say that, you know, these kind of comparing the leaders to this. But you know, I told you about Patriot Act, right? Mm -hmm. Hassan Minaj's show. So he, this guy has had shows on India where he talks about Hassan Minhaj is a Muslim of Indian descent. So he's talked about Modi before and been critical of Modi. So he was there to cover the event and they told him there's no room for him. And it was because he criticized Modi. So he had to watch it in the parking lot with the 15,000 or so protesters. But he said, the funny thing was I saw him talking on a late night show and he said that, you know, they're talking about all the Indian Americans who've gained prominence in the last few years. And he goes, we even have comedians. And he said, they flashed a picture of him. So it's like, they won't let him in there, but they were using him to show how like, how well Indian Americans are doing. So it's it's pretty interesting because there's definitely a lot of tension in India right now. And it's something that I pay attention to because this is where my fam my parents are from and yeah. it's where I go. I've been to India. Um, I've actually been to India like right after 
horrible things have, has, have happened. In 93, there was a mosque that was destroyed, and there was a lot of riots then. Mostly, they happened in Mumbai. I was there a few weeks later. And then when the terrorist attacks happened in 2008, I was in India a few months later, a few weeks later, too. So I've, all, I've kind of watched the rhetoric change and uh, people saying things. And, you know, I've been, I voraciously read India Press, too. So How has the rhetoric changed? Um, not... You know, there's definitely a lot of people who are left wing. The media is very, you know, the media is very critical of Modi. But, you know, you see it. You've seen people talk openly about, you know, how they feel about minorities in India. And uh, most of the minorities in India, they're Sikhs, there's Christians, there's different religious groups. They're not happy with Modi. So there's just kind of been a push back, you know, even changing names. I mean, India, uh, Muslims have been in India for a long time. So it, there's... There's a feeling where, um, I don't know if you know, there's this one state where they told, you know, a lot of the Muslims who are there, they're saying that they're not from there, they're immigrants. And they've actually started these little campgrounds. So it's, it, there's been a lot of news stories about it. I've been reading, you, you've been hearing about Kashmir. Kashmir is um, actually the mostly, it's, a most, it's the only state in India that's Muslim majority. So they got rid of their special status. And, you know, India and Pakistan have been fighting over that country for a long time. And of course, there's a lot of, you know, depending on where you're coming from but a lot of a lot of things aren't being covered there right now people are being you know kept from there and so it's it's just an interesting it's an interesting time in India and it's interesting that Modi came here there were a lot of protesters outside the stadium including a family friend of mine yeah. but i just think it's interesting that interesting that Raja Krishnamurthy went as a democrat indian american and then Danny Davis i don't I, you know i don't know what the, what the thinking is there but it, it's it's just interesting i'm just saying that if there was let's say uh mahmoud ahmed you know let's say he came to the united states and the president cozied up to him i'm sure there would have been a lot more uproar but i just feel like nobody really thinks that this is that important well it, it's it, not i don't i don't think people realize how offensive it is to some indian americans well, that, that, not that, all yeah i i'm not equating anything Ram or any mayor of Chicago <laughs> did uh, to what's happening in India uh, in terms of Modi and what's happening yeah. in Kashmir and all that. But I'm saying, uh, I agree with <laughs> this basic point. The closer you are to a particular issue, of course, the more important it becomes. And the further away you are from that issue, the less relevant it becomes. And so people are constantly uh, saying to me with my obsessions i talk about this with other reporters like all the time or something like, or politics why do you care <laughs> what do you what do you care cuz it's they're not it's they're not in on it yeah. and when i look what's normal what's considered normal in american politics this very controversial prime minister from india who's involved in to put it mildly very controversial policies people call him people say he's they accuse him of ethnic cleansing ethnic we're at least like, you could country. say you're heading in that yeah. direction mm -hmm. it's it's very scary it's very frightening the the whole relationship between pakistan and india these are two countries <laughs> yeah. that have nuclear weapons you know and every now and then there's a flare up at the kashmir and like it's buried in page 10 of yeah. maybe the new york times I, there may be a paragraph in the sun times and the tribune so this is really an important issue yeah but to most 
most Americans, yeah, I it's know, like, is irrelevant as a TIFF deal. You know what I mean? <laughs> what do you care? I know, and, but and, but the thing is, you. Sh- I'm just saying. I'm just saying. If it was another leader from another country with you. that you know did something to minority groups, you know, was rude. To, you know, was not rude, but was treating Christians differently. Don't I mean, I just feel like I just feel like sometimes Americans can be very selective of, you know, who they, you know, even the left people on the left. Do they even care? You know what I mean? It's like there's it's just like yawn. Yeah. So I just I just find it interesting. Yeah. And I'm obviously very close to it. So I am I am going to feel very strongly about it. But I just feel like if it was another leader, if it was a Muslim leader that was treating uh, Christians terribly or Jewish people terribly, I think this would be front page news. I I agree, and this uh, this gets to the point, the larger point, which is that uh, it it seems as though there, we've lost sight of some sort of like objective standard for right and wrong, and it's a variance. Like if you have if you have personal knowledge or you have relatives that are affected you understand it and you're aware of it. Yeah. If you're on the side of the president, it doesn't matter. If you're uh, against Blagojevich, it really matters. <laughs> There's no like objectives. It's not yeah, like anybody I, and, is. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm very close to it. So I just think it's, I just think it's interesting. I think it is rele- relevant. I think Rajana, Raja Krishnamurthy, I think his base is pretty, there's a large Indian population. And obviously not everybody agrees on this because that Modi event was sold out. It was like 50,000 people. And so, you know, he does have his fans. Yeah. And the fact that Trump was there raises the whole possibility of like, is our Indian Americans going to vote for Donald Trump because he showed up uh, for this rally? And then you get into the issues of the splits within like Indian American yeah. community. Yeah. And it's definitely split. And, and most Indians are Democrats, actually. I so I, Trump was bragging, this is going to bring well, over he, I told vote. you, he has a lot of South Asian. <laughs> yeah. I think the South Asians um, of any minority group, they're the largest representative. And I was telling that to Lynn Sweet that day, and she's like, well, they're on his cabinet. I go, a lot of people that are South Asian work for Trump. And they're not Muslim, but... I mean, he might have. He, I think he there was there was a group called Muslims for Trump. So it's not like there aren't any, and there are mostly South Asians. But you know, you never. It's just a very interesting time, and the South Asian diaspora is very interesting. And I think um, people don't realize that what I, one of my editors in the newsroom thinks that if World War Three happens, it's going to happen in that region. So. If, 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 if there's going to be any That's attention. a very real possibility. I, know. I, I don't want to be alarm anybody, but yeah, <laughs> like, like I said, these stories that are buried in the back of the pages talking about two countries flying planes over <laughs> each, this, you know, there's a no flight zone. And if you go across it, we're going to shoot your plane down. I mean, it's happening out in real and time. I, you know, I, and a lot of Muslim, a lot of uh, Muslim Indians, we have relatives in Pakistan yeah. too. I've been to both countries. I like both countries and it's not like I dislike India. It's like I have an attachment to it because that's where my parents are from. Yeah. And well, I go often. Um, I'm always urging you to write columns and then I urge you to specific. This is a topic uh, that I would really love to see you take a deep dive on because I think people really in this country do need to have some basic understanding of what's going on uh, and the possible consequences. Uh, and then maybe there'll be a little more fallout uh, when elected officials just rally behind behind them. At least they have to be accountable and explain uh, why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, by the way, uh, Hazan Minaj, the comedian that you were yeah. just alluding to, he just for the record, let me know, he's ve- been very critical of Muslim countries too. Yeah, His he is. bit on Saudi Arabia yeah, yeah. is recommended. And you, know, most, and you know what most 
um, non-Muslims don't re- don't realize is that most Muslims don't like Saudi Arabia. We don't like the leadership there. We go there because you have to do their pilgrimage, the Hajj. But um, I mean, we all have we've all have had family friends who worked in Saudi Arabia. Like a lot of my, I had I had two family friends who I grew up in the United States. Um, they, you know, in the eighties, they were recruiting a lot of people. So their dads were professors there in the schools, and I just, just like, yeah, no, he's gone after Saudi Arabia, and everything that he said, we knew. It's just that we're allies. We, the United States is allies with Saudi Arabia, so we don't say anything. So I was actually talking to Mick the other day, my husband, um, that, you know, you know, <laughs> when we're talking about Iran and Saudi Arabia, I've been to both countries. I would take Iran over Saudi Arabia in a heartbeat. All right. By the way, we're so, coming to the recommendation oh, part okay. of the show. And I, so since you met Mick, uh, mentioned Mick, I'll give my recommendation first, a shameless pitch for uh, Tuesday's uh, first Tuesday show, October 1st. We're going to have two aldermen on uh, Jeanette Taylor, alderwoman Jeanette Taylor, I should say, and alderman Matt Martin. We're going to take apart the budget. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, I know Mick's excited about the show. And uh, so that's my pitch. And also, this is the weekend I'm going to see. I couldn't see it last week because I went, I went to a wedding. Uh-huh. A hustler, the J-Lo. She just saw she's going to be performing. Yeah, but that was that was old news. Oh, was it? The, the new news was that <laughs> Shakira. I, I pronounced oh, it Shakira. Shocker. Yeah, it was Shocker. Oh, that's that's a, so they knew J-Lo was going to be yeah, there? Yeah, that was old. Uh, that's that old. My beloved bright one that I was so excited. There, that's because they mentioned you know, it was going to be a double. A double win. Yeah. So uh, Anyway, all right. Well, it was, I was excited. She uh, showed up in her. Uh, remember the dress that she wore that became really famous? Which one? It was the one that when she no, was, which which person showed this up? This is Jennifer Lopez. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. the green dress. You don't remember? Yeah, I remember herself. the yeah. green dress. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she she wore something similar to that at a fashion show in Paris, and she looked really good. But yeah. anyway, uh, so I do want to watch it. I do want to watch it. Have you started watching um, Unbelievable yet? No, I've not. But you've been recommending that. No, one I started watching. I I didn't. I start. I started watching that. Um, and it's really good. It's really sad, but it's very good. And it's based on a ProPublica story about a rape case. It's a it's a very sad story, but it's done very well. And I think the reporter and the first victim that they focus on, mm-hmm. um, she she thought it was very realistic and portrayed what she was feeling and what exactly happened. So my recommendation this week is um, it's something more serious, not not the hustlers, but it's. Uh, it's a podcast by one of my colleagues, Frank Maine. It's called Motive. It's based on the life and story of Thaddeus Jimenez, who is the youngest man t- uh, to be convicted and exonerated of a murder. He was exonerated in 2009, or at least the charges were dropped in 2009 when, or 2008, 2009, when I started working at the criminal courthouse. So I covered this case. So that's why it was extra interesting to me. And then maybe like a year later, there's like, there's like every day there's bond court, there's central bond court, and then there's felony, uh, there's branch 66, which is all the murder and rape cases. And there, and the other bond court is all the other felonies that aren't murder and murders and rapes. Sometimes I would just look at the names and I remember like months or a year later, I see his name on there. And so this kid basically, you know, is cleared of a crime when he was, I think he was in his 20s when he came out. He was 13 when he was convicted. He was convicted at age 13 and sentenced. Sentenced to 45 years. So I was listening to Frank's, the second part of the podcast started. It's it's with WBZ and it's called Motive, if I hadn't mentioned. But this Thaddeus Jimenez is right now serving a couple years in federal prison for shooting a guy in the legs because he he got a $25 million settlement, mm-hmm. you know, for Wait, the, so he was convicted at age 13, sentenced and for while, 40, yeah, 45 years. And, and he was, he was actually, yeah, he was actually sentenced to 50 years. So it was Frank's, uh, 
podcast this episode this week's episode which actually came out today he interviews the mom and the mom was just so heartbroken during the uh sentencing phase that the judge actually took sympathy and cut the sentence by five years and gave him uh, 45 years Mm -hmm. so he gets out of prison gets in trouble he used to be part of this gang called the simon city royals and then he's starting to restart this gang he has 25 million dollars he would pay these guys to you know join the gang and, you know, when he shot this guy in 2015, I believe, he shot him in the legs out of this, like, really nice Mercedes. And Ava Maria was playing the opera while mm-hmm. this is all happening. So it's a it's a very, very interesting uh, a podcast because it goes into, like, you know, this guy was wrongfully convicted. Then, you know, is the $25 million really going to help him? Or it's it's just like. It's, a, it's an interesting case study. And the last week's episode, I think Frank, from what I remember, he talks to the guy that was injured. And then he talks to some people that were involved in his life, including his attorney. And this week, he kind of talks to the mom and, and the life he had before he joined a gang and, you know, the story of his mom. And she was like the struggling, struggling single woman. So I think it's pretty interesting. I don't know if you followed the case at I, all. I follow the case uh, from afar, obviously. I, I did never interview the young man or, and I never wrote about it, but I, I read, the Sun-Times has been writing about this for a long, yeah. it seems like forever. Yeah, and then you remember the infamous 2017, like, the strip, clo- strip club. Which I know I forget. It's funny. I think I remember the strip. I remember the shooting while Ava Maria's playing, yeah. and I because that was the Sun Times may have put that on the on, on the on the internet. The, yeah, the video of it. Um, but I remember that uh, just the stories about like the sad story about uh, his incarceration at a very young yeah. age, as though a, a life had just been utterly wasted, mm-hmm. and then he gets this second chance. Um, <coughs> excuse me. He gets a who in life, Romana gets a second chance, you know, and he gets a second chance with twenty five million dollars of our taxpayers' dollars, whatever, and then he just he can't help himself, and he goes right back to that life. That life, and, and I uh, remember covering one of his. I, I just sitting in a in a drug case when uh, you know after he got this twenty five million dollar settlement and he was sitting there with his family and I was like outside and he had like this really nice watch. I just looked at it and I'm like, oh God, that's probably like a fifty thousand dollar watch. I can just tell right now and it's it's actually a pretty sad story. And I think Frank does a really good job. I mean I've been talking to Frank while he was working on this podcast because he's been doing that for the last couple months. So I was curious. And because I, I actually interviewed Thaddeus and I interviewed the mom when he was um, exonerated, it's, it's, it's just oh, must fascinating. Bring home it. Yeah. Wait, so did, I'm sorry, you interviewed the mom. Did you interview Thaddeus? Did you say it? Yeah, because he had just, he, they just cleared him of right. murder charges. And so it, I was at 26 in California. Yeah. I was assigned there. So he had a whole press conference. So I remember talking to him and the mom. So it's just interesting. Was he just, humble? Yeah, he seemed humble. And that's when you talk, when you listen to the podcast, a lot of the attorneys, I'm, I mean, obviously this is only part two, mm-hmm. but everybody was saying like when they were talking to him, he seemed like a pretty intelligent guy. Um, it's just, and then, you know, it's just interesting cause he grew up in Avondale, which is like the hip neighborhood now. Now. Yeah. And they just said it was really rough in 91. I probably never went there, you know, when I was a young college student, but it's just interesting how the neighborhood changes, just hearing them talk about how tough it was at that time. And now it's like this trendy 
area where you know that's up and you know it's probably it's going towards gentrification uh, yeah. if it hasn't already a trendy north side neighborhood and yeah uh, avondale yeah i'm definitely gonna uh, in fact i probably have to watch it because i want to bring frank uh, on uh, the show to, to a bonus so i'll yeah. have to listen to it uh, yeah, yeah i think it, and they're only before. they're only they're not like long podcasts they're half hour podcasts and i think they're done pretty well and uh, as long as I have you in here, we're talking about uh, criminal justice cases, uh, cases at the uh, uh, 20 uh, at California and California. Uh, Tyshawn Lee, we've talked about that a lot. Yeah. This is one of the saddest stories. Yeah, on. that the Tyshawn Lee was a nine year old boy who was shot um, execution style. Um, he was playing basketball at a park and the alleged gunman lured him away, telling him, oh, you know, let's play basketball, I'll get you some candy at a corner store. And he gets shot in the head. And apparently this was in retaliation for a shooting that happened with a rival gang where uh, the mother of one of the suspects, there's two men on trial right now. One is D. Wright, I think it's pronounced D. Wright Boone Doty and Corey Morgan. Corey Morgan's um, mother was shot and injured and Corey Morgan's brother was killed in um, a shooting that happened maybe a couple weeks before um, Tyshawn Lee was killed. So Tyshawn Lee was killed in retaliation for the, that shooting. And it was it was like two gang factions. And uh, Tyshawn's father was part of this other rival gang. And so, you know, reputedly. And so um, it's a very sad case. I think it's, I think the trial is still going to, the trial is still going to take place next week. But there's been questions. I mean, the last couple of days, there's uh, been people on the stand. Uh, the straw buyer was on the stand mm-hmm. yesterday. And he talked about, it was interesting. He said, I knew the gun was going to be, wasn't was going to be used for something wasn't going to be used for something good but i didn't know it was going to get to this level and that's it's telling in itself it's yeah. actually very very sad yeah. and just like a nine-year-old boy you know you just wonder he's just kid playing in the park and he told his grandma he's going to come home and he never came never home came so home. uh that story is unfolding as we speak uh romana thanks so much for again spending friday with us and we're going to see you in a couple hours for as part of our uh inaugural uh trivia yeah. contest i'm much like i said i haven't had much sleep so hopefully it'll be okay oh man the showdown is ready to happen it'll uh, be fun it'll be fun it'll be a lot of fun okay. uh, dr d's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve anyway ramana hussein thank you so much thanks Meredith's, for having me again meredith's on deck we're gonna bring you on when we return hey everybody what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of jeff manuel Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel.
But we got to get down to business. Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. All right, everybody, hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Friday, September 27th is moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for sponsoring this program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8. Robert Muller, it's District 8, right? That's correct. Okay, thank you. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two, let's go. It is Friday, September 27th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, we're talking all things national politics with political analyst Meredith Shiner. And the Heartland Mamas are back. I repeat, the Heartland Mamas are back. Murray Briel and Heidi Henry. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. The Heartland Mamas are underway. They're uh, whipping up the highway right now from Grundy County. Kind of tell us uh, how the Democrats can take back Trump, uh, take it, get back the vote in Trump County before we get the Heartland Mamas on. we got Meredith Shiner on. You might remember her from a bonus interview. It's about, about a month or so ago, Meredith. And I said as soon as Zena was it's, over. It's been 10 years in real political time, I think. But, yeah, I think it's only actually been a few weeks. It has been 10 years. Uh, the last time you were here, uh, and let's just say Meredith uh, covered Washington for many years for political roll call uh, and Yahoo News, so she knows a thing or two about uh, Congress and White House and how they interact. The last time you were here, it seemed as though the investigation into Donald Trump's uh, wheeling and dealing with the Russians had hit a, a wall, and it was uncertain if Nancy Pelosi was ever going to greenlight uh, an impeachment inquiry, much less an impeachment vote. Uh, it seems as though Donald Trump was wandering around the world pounding his chest victorious i mean then, i think he was gonna oh, do that no matter what yes um, probably be doing that tomorrow yeah i i mean uh, completely regardless of situation no so we were here a few weeks ago it didn't look like we were close to any sort of formal impeachment inquiry uh, but one of the things that i've been saying this week because people have asked me about it uh, and what might have changed and we can talk about the substance of what has changed but one of the things that i like to talk about in terms of Nancy Pelosi is that in the decade that I've been following her closely, Nancy Pelosi has never held a vote that she didn't have the votes for. And so I think that when you saw Adam Schiff's letter about this whistleblower and as more details have become apparent, the second that Nancy Pelosi said she was opening the inquiry was the second that I knew 
that she had the votes, right? And we've seen in the past few days that more and more House Democrats uh, have said that they support impeachment. Um, And we can talk about the whole menu of reasons why House Democrats do at this point. But I think the big difference between last time we talked and now is that Nancy was confident that her entire caucus was going to support this on the floor. And now you're only seeing a handful of holdouts. You're seeing more than 225 uh, House Democrats saying that they support this. And so I think in the weeks and potentially months ahead, we're going to see an investigation run out of the Intelligence Committee. I think that's intentional, right? People asked why it would be an intel when traditionally um, you would see this happening out of judiciary. And yes, like the Intelligence Committee has evolved because of what this whistleblower uncovered. But I also think it's it, it's because Nancy trusts Adam Schiff, who is the House Intelligence Chairman, more than she trusts Jerry Nadler at this point. And you can see by the way that this week has unfolded that Schiff really has the savvy to create the case against Donald Trump and the media pressure I think that we're seeing this week is a result of his smarts in terms of how to create the story and how to unearth the facts. All right, let's take it uh, point by point. You've given us a lot and uh, there, let's there's just, a lot in the world, <laughs> but there's a lot of good stuff to yeah. deal with. So let's start with Adam Schiff's role to explain to mm-hmm. people exactly who Adam Schiff is and the role he played in the unveiling of the story. Yeah. So Adam Schiff is a member of the house from California, but most most importantly for this conversation, he is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. If you remember from Bob Mueller Day on Capitol Hill, there were two hearings that Mueller testified in front of. It was Judiciary and it was Intelligence. Uh, and the House Intelligence Committee has really been focused on uh, the way that the, that Russia or other countries have been interfering with our elections, right? The part of the Mueller report that was a little less salacious, right, but possibly more important in terms of the integrity of the republic because it had to do all with the security of our elections. Um, And so we know that that this whistleblower report has been out there for weeks. Uh, We know that uh, one of the reasons we hadn't seen it was because the White House didn't want us to see it, and the CIA had made the unusual move of of asking the White House what to do with it. Uh, Possibly Bill Barr was involved in terms of trying to keep this from getting out there. And the reason we're having this conversation today is, if you recall, several days ago, Adam Schiff put out a statement I think that set off all of the alarm bells and sirens for reporters because it made it alluded to this whistleblower report. It alluded to really damaging information that this whistleblower um, had potentially divulged. And the reason you saw people digging, the reason why we're seeing stories in The Washington Post and The New York Times is really because this statement from Adam Schiff set the ball in motion. Um, One of the things that's been talked about today is that there are actually two whistleblowers. There's one um, who has whistleblown about the IRS uh, and um, obstructing in terms of Trump's tax returns. Uh, But the chairman of that committee of jurisdiction had gone to a judge to try to force the administration to turn over documents and has not found success in going through the legal system and getting that whistleblower report. So what Adam Schiff did and what he was savvy enough to do was if I put out this statement Mm -hmm. telegraphing that this exists, I can direct reporters in the right direction. I can set off 
basically the administration into this crazy defensive mode where now we see Rudy Giuliani sharing his personal texts on national television. <laughs> I right? missed that. Oh my god. Oh, this, oh, this was last night. <laughs> Here's the thing. That. Like, I don't know yeah. if like somehow yeah. Rudy Giuliani yeah. is like the Manchurian candidate yeah. of this and bringing down the whole administration or if he's just lost his mind. But um, <laughs> he was sharing texts with State Department officials. He's implicating everyone yeah. and more people nightly on Fox News. Um, so anyway, so Adam Schiff is really smart. I remember thinking um, when the majority uh, flipped this past Congress that it was it was really important and it was really good that he was in this position. Talk about the difference between him and his predecessor at intelligence before uh, uh, the flip of uh, the House. I mean, Devin Nunes, yes. who says that liberals are trying to like unearth naked pictures of Donald Trump. Yes, like if you're going to choose a conspiracy, yeah. choose one that at least feels real. Yeah. Right. No one wants to see that. Uh, no, I mean, there's a total difference because one person is a professional and one person isn't. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's been revealing to see Republicans talk this week. The number of Senate Republicans who said that they hadn't had a chance to read this whistleblower report, it wasn't a 400-page document. It was nine pages. They've seen it. This was like every time former House Speaker Paul Ryan was asked if he had seen a tweet, and he was like, I don't look at tweets. You saw it. You knew. Like, it was your job to know the political story of the day. So, you know, these senators have seen it. They're going on this two-week recess. And, um, you know, we were sort of talking about this before the show, what will be really revealing and what will be really important and incumbent upon House Democrats to do is to be really intentional and deliberate about how they're unearthing information uh, throughout this, um, you know, inquiry process. All right. Now, let me let me stop you right there. Yeah. Uh, Oh, my God. There's been so much talk. Uh, about this, uh, one ob- one one theory put out there, which I don't buy, mm-hmm. is that somehow or other uh, Donald Trump is this mastermind who uh, threw out the bait. Uh, the Democrats grabbed for it uh, to have an impeachment inquiry uh, into something that is not going to be substantial and the Democrats will be embarrassed. This is actually a theory that some people, Democrats have come in, they're so paranoid, they've got so much post-traumatic stress disorder, Meredith. So I don't believe that for for one moment, but please entertain, just just entertain that notion. Is there even a possibility that that could be the case? So I'm not even going to like accept the premise of your question because I think one of the most damaging things about the conversation about this impeachment, and and I think it's still a hangover from the Bill Clinton impeachment, is that this is about politics. At the end of the day, this is about a constitutional obligation. And so even if starting this inquiry means that Donald Trump could win, First of all, he could win anyway. I mean, look at what what's actually happening to our election systems. We're not passing election security bills. We have a completely defanged Voting Rights Act. So the Department of Justice, even if it wanted to act, doesn't have the tools it once did mm-hmm. to protect voters. Like, whether or not Donald Trump wins the next election, that doesn't matter Because this process should happen because it's a constitutional obligation. It's about being on the right side of history. It's about fulfilling the duty of the office. I saw Doug Jones, who's the senator from Alabama, Mm -hmm. 
posted on Twitter yesterday. He said, I wish reporters would stop asking me what I th- what I think this means for my reelection. This isn't about my election. This is about the oath of office that I have taken. Right. And they're like Donald Trump has admitted to doing this. Yeah. Rudy Giuliani has talked about doing this. Mm-hmm. The attorney general, who, by the way, has already provided probably ample enough reason for Congress to impeach him based on how he behaved during the Mueller report, is potentially implicated in this too. And so either you believe in the Republic and the institutions and defending them, or you don't. And that was what was so confusing, I think, about Nancy Pelosi's posture before this. Talk about that. Um, because I think she she was making a political calculation, right? I think she was apprehensive too. And again, Clinton impeachment hangover maybe, that this would galvanize the right. But at the end of the day, the politics of a that they're ancillary. It's about um, whether or not you believe that the legislative branch should actually be a legitimate check on an executive, whether or not it should be able to use every tool at its disposal to be able to expel a president who by all accounts and what we know right now has violated his oath of office and is potentially based on his own admission colluding with a foreign government to affect the 2020 election after he did it in 2016 yeah so you know again i think that nancy moved forward because she had the support of basically her entire caucus and with this new push this week she had no choice because if she didn't there was another political calculation for her, which was that she was going to so depress the base that that Democrats were going to be so frustrated that they were doing nothing, yeah. that it would be problematic, which is not to say that people weren't going to be motivated to turn out in 2020. I think that people will be. Um, but I, I think that she got to this place where there was absolutely no choice. No, so there was no. And did. by the way, there was a danger. I do believe you're absolutely correct. There was a danger of depression setting in Mm -hmm. and uh there's this we've had this conversation to show since the last time you're here at great length where rom got on uh, abc tv after the the debates and said that the the base will show up regardless and most of the people who trot through the studio say no you cannot assume that your base is you have to give them a reason you got to get fired up definitely trump's going to be doing that on his side and uh, so if the Democrats just rolled over and let Trump in the aftermath of Lewandowski's testimony, which we talked about at length in the show, so, uh, and the way he just gave the Thankfully, I was re- actually really busy at my day job oh, that day God, and missed most of it happening it. He just basically, basically gave the middle finger, two middle fingers high to the Democrats. And then the, so that after a while, it's just like Trump feels to get away with anything. Trump's people feel they can get away with anything. The Democrats are just going to roll over. So I do believe you're absolutely correct. I think there would have been an impact on yeah. turnout if the Democrats hadn't been vigilant at this you know, point. You know, but I, but I do really think think that it's important to view this divorce from politics but I, but i having said that having said that um what i will also say and mm-hmm. what we were talking about a little bit before uh, i came on was you know i've seen a lot of conversation about what will happen you know once the house writes the articles of impeachment votes on it and kicks this to the senate right because um if you think about impeachment uh, the house is like the prosecutors yes. and then the court is the Senate, right? Mm -hmm. And they get to choose whether or not to vote to indict the president. And, um, you know, a lot of people talked about, well, you know, if 
if we can't get mm. a Senate vote, why would we do it in the House? Yeah. One, you should put pressure on the Senate. But two, I think, you know, you saw like Jeff Flake saying that there are 35 secret Republican votes for impeachment in the Senate, I, which is like nonsense. But what I will say is this, is that Mitch McConnell is smarter than most people in the administration and he is much more calculating. And so if he makes the calculation that he thinks the prospects for the Republican Party in 2020 are better without Trump, he will do it because all he cares about is stacking the judiciary for a lifetime and he cares about unlimited money in politics. And so if he looks at this and he gets to a place where he makes the decision that his party is better off without Trump, the reason why they've circled around him is for now they've felt like there's a certain floor to where Republicans are. There's a certain unmovable base for Trump. But what we're seeing is that perceptions are starting to shift. And if House Democrats do like the impeachment inquiry correctly, if they're able to continue to unearth more and it's shared properly, I think you're going to see public sentiment shift. And if Mitch McConnell thinks that there's a significant shift in the Republican Party, I think you could actually see them act. I'm not, I'm not, I won't guarantee it, but I think that that's the way in which it happens. All right, before we get to the Republicans in the Senate, let's talk about what Schiff should do or how the investigation in the House will unfold. What's your sense of how it will unfold? So the preliminary reporting suggests that they want to get a House floor vote by Thanksgiving. So... That gives us about two months. Um, They're on a two-week recess now. Um, So, you know, I think that there's some sense, and what's been reported uh, to date is that they think because the president has already admitted to this, that, you know, they don't have to have a drawn-out process. Mm -hmm. But I think the more information they're unable or the more information they're able to unearth Mm -hmm. the better the case that they're making to the american people like you're always going to have sort of this weird fox news bubble where hannity is existing in this certain place but even now we're seeing these reports that paul ryan who sits on the board for uh fox news Mm -hmm. now is secretly sort of telling rupert murdoch's son who's running the company that they should start positioning and supporting different Republicans. Republicans. So that's that's why I sort of indicated that maybe Mitch McConnell might shift his position. The best thing that Democrats could do is actually be methodical and deliberate and present all the facts like this is different than the Clinton impeachment in the sense that the Clinton impeachment came down to one thing. Right. Were you going which which side of like getting a blowjob in the Oval Office where you're going to be on <laughs> when like history looked back on this. Yeah. This is a little bit bigger. This is a little bit more substantial. Yeah. Like there's more to talk <laughs> yeah. about here. And like if if the president is taking all of these conversations that he's having and they're putting it in these secret servers uh-huh. and they can get access they to what the they Congress, Congress mm-hmm. can get access to all of the things that they've been hiding in the server that was designed to keep the most confidential covert CIA activities, but now just as ho- like home to these routine calls where he is incriminating himself, yeah. it, they should share that. They should make the case. They should continue to put together the case. There was a David Leonhardt um, 
opinion piece in the New York Times a few days ago. It was just like a list of 45 things that the president has yes, done saw that. that have mm-hmm. been like an embarrassment to the office or potentially illegal or impeachable, impeachable. Yeah. offenses. Mm-hmm. So they should they should keep building on that list. All right. Now, let's get back to uh, the conversations that are embedded in this like secret safe somewhere in the White House. Yeah. Uh, we, they uncovered the one. They, the, mm-hmm. his conversation with the Ukrainian president. Because the whistleblower was able to report on it. My, my guess is they'll resist turning over any others. What do you think? I, I mean, I can't, sp- I, I can't guess. I mean, based on their like previous behavior, yes. I would say that they're not really willing to uh, share information. I think the most important thing is as long as they're not able to destroy it. I know I saw uh, Schiff talking uh, to Rachel Maddow, I think it was last night, where he was saying that Congress has is issued an order to the administration to make sure that they're not destroying any of this material on the server. Who knows if they'll actually comply? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, there have to be enough people who are still working in the CIA, who work for the National Security Council, who care enough about the country that they would hopefully stop any sort of destruction or obstruction. Now, I've been in this bubble uh, for at least two hours now away Mm -hmm. from breaking news. My guess is that at some point the Republicans will uh, do a counterattack along the lines what they did uh, in the with the Mueller report and start identifying and naming uh, the people who are the whistleblowers. Trump already I said. I mean, if the New York Times doesn't before them. Yes. Okay. Has have they released the name yet? No. Are so they, they this was um this was controversial. They were listing identifying factors of the yes. whistleblower, and Dean Bacay put out a note saying so, that it was in order to create credibility for the source, but the source is already credible because everything that the whistleblower described was almost exactly in the transcript. So do you think they went too far, the New York Times? Yes. Yes, because you had the president on tape at an event basically saying that this whistleblower should be murdered. So you're endangering You're endangering the source. The exact uh, quote is, uh, whoever did so was close to a spy, and that quote, in the old days, spies were dealt with with differently. And uh, I think he was, uh, uh, it's not just the whistleblower he was talking about. He was actually talking about whoever it was that fed the whistleblower the information about the phone call, because the whistleblower did not have firsthand knowledge of the phone call. So it would be like more people. uh, I mean, you know, so the whistleblower, was identified by the New York Times as a CIA analyst mm-hmm. so who was stationed at the White House. So his job was to constantly have conversations with the people who were in the middle of like all of these different calls or, you know, um, like national security operations. All right. So there's uh, that leads me to the next question, the media's yeah. role in all this. But before we do, let me just follow up with uh my guess is if if the uh, the reaction to the Mueller report or to the investigation into uh, Russia Gate is any indication, pretty soon uh, the Republicans will name operatives, name analysts who have somehow have uh, ties to different Democrats, different Democratic campaigns. They'll try to make every. You said what's very important that was that we remove politics for this and talk specifically exactly about what went down. But my guess is that Republicans will immediately try to bring politics into it as much as they can in order to discredit uh, the investigation and to give talking points to all the people they trot out into uh, Fox. 
Uh, Is that your sense of how they're going to proceed? I don't know because... So if you looked at the first wave of comments yesterday, they were ostensibly all no comments. Every Republican senator said, I didn't read it. So the question is, have we reached a point where, again, they're going to make a calculation that having Trump on the ticket is going to be a bigger drag on the party and everything they want? than what they previously perceived. And again, I don't know if that we've necessarily reached that point. And you're always going to have a Devin Nunes who does whatever it is that Devin Nunes wants to do. But on this, it's been interesting to see on the Senate side mm-hmm. that they just totally dodged it for the most yeah. part um, and now have this two-week break. And I think that, you know... Mitch is going to be pretty feverish and trying to figure out what he wants to do next. <laughs> I mean, the the uh, on the House side, the, I don't know what's wrong with Kevin McCarthy. But, um, like Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise have just been tweeting up a storm about how all of this is garbage and trying yeah. to show old clips of Democrats railing against Clinton's impeachment. But some of them have to be smart enough to know that this is different. And... You know, it'll it'll also be interesting to see what someone like a Lamar Alexander from Tennessee does. Right. I've seen some people float around a lot of names of, of Senate Republicans who might finally be the one who stands up like Mitt Romney is always like the D.C. media center of intrigue, which yeah. I he's never done anything to prove that. But you have quite a few um, retiring Senate Republicans who used to be more normal and who still have some semblance of DNA of yeah. like caring about the country or once believing in things. So if you're a Lamar Alexander who's been there forever, who, you know, has been a committee chairman, who, you know, was uh, committed to education and supported No Child Left Behind, which you may argue that wasn't great public policy. It's since been revamped, but at least it was emblematic of having having a belief that (laughs) you could do something with a a role to try to improve people's lives, Mm -hmm. right? What do those people do when they're not up for re-election, when all they think about is their legacy? And it doesn't really matter if Trump posts something like negative about them on Twitter because they're done. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I think that if anyone is going to flip and there's any sort of movement, it might be someone like that. Like I, I'm, I'm less intrigued by Mitt, even though there was a big Susan story Collins. That's what all Democrats always look to me. Okay, can I tell you my really hot take about Susan? Go Collins? ahead. And I am convinced that I'm right about this. I mean, I'm usually convinced I'm right about most things, uh-huh. but I'm especially convinced I'm right about this. So yeah. Susan Collins, for a long time, served alongside Olympia Snow, mm-hmm. who was an actual moderate Republican from Maine, Old who was school. actually. Yeah. Pro- choice Mm -hmm. and who was actually a good senator. So people lumped the two of them together because at the time everyone else in the Senate was just a bunch of old white dudes. So I was like, oh, like Susan Collins is this great moderate defender of things. But really they just were thinking about Olympia Olympia Snow. Snow, Susan Collins was always jonesing to be like one of the amigos with John McCain and Lindsey Graham and just like talking about bombing all of the Middle East. 
Olympia Snow was the good senator. So they're just confused. Well, that's that's. I wish I knew that back in the uh, during the Brett Kavanaugh days. But we, yeah, I could, I could have told you. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Everybody was waiting. How is she going to go on this vote? And that was one of the most uh, disappointing uh, turnouts. All right. Um, the media's role in all this. Uh, you were there. You were part of the the media beast in Washington for yeah. uh, several years. What role will the media be playing in this unfolding? My hope, although I'm not holding my breath, is that they don't focus on this political part of it. Like, what does this mean? Because the political part is the safe part, mm-hmm. right? The political part and the point scoring part is the thing that you can easily both sides. The substantive part, the integrity of the republic, the, the integrity of our election systems, that's harder to both sides because right now one side is the bad faith actor and one side isn't. And so my hope is, is that the vast majority of the reporting, the meaningful reporting, looks at the substance of what's being unearthed. I am not convinced that that is even going to be the majority of the coverage, but if the media were to be responsible, that would be the focus of the coverage, but it's harder. That's the harder work. We're seeing some of it, right? I think the reason we're here, the reason this inquiry is being opened was, again, what we discussed earlier. Adam Schiff put out this statement, investigative reporters at some of our flagship newspapers went after it, right? So that part is good. It's the political speculative part that is bad. And that's the thing you're going to see, you know, reporters asking Democrats who are out on the trail right now, right? You have all of these embeds who are chasing every single Democratic candidate for president, and they shouldn't be asking all the time, what do you think this means for your prospects in 2020? Because that's a distraction. But that's the easy part, and that's the part, again... There's some so editor like in Washington say, asking them to ask that. Of course, because yeah. let me tell you how editors in Washington work. They wake up in the morning, they watch Morning Joe, they see whatever these insiders are talking about to each other, and that's what they want you to report on. And that's divorced oftentimes from, one, the reality of the world that we live in, um, but also just, like, the important stuff, right? We shouldn't let groupthink take hold, and we shouldn't let the politics of this dictate how we talk about it because at the end of the day when people talk about this a hundred years from now when some poor person hopefully not in texas writes the history books (laughs) for what we're living through right now it's not going to be the he said she said political horse race tracking polls Uh it's going to be the substantive nature of like were we able to protect the integrity of of the executive branch, did the legislative branch hold the executive in check? And were we able to continue? Because the rebuilding process is gonna be incredibly hard. Like we've spent the past 25 years eroding the institutions of this republic, whether it was trust in media or trust in government. And again, I'm not gonna both sides that erosion. I think that there's one party that was more responsible for it than the other. Mm -hmm. But in order to reemerge, I think we're gonna have to be really honest and confront as honestly and as substantively substantively as possible the moment we're living through now Mm. and what's happened and how much has already been traded away and how much have we lost in order to build back and to gain again. All right. That is Meredith Shiner. That was one heck of a riff that she closed down uh, the show with, or at least this portion of the show with, uh, 
thank you very much for coming in here, sharing all your knowledge. I am definitely going to ask you to come back. Maybe have you do be our special. Uh, I love that this is. Date. I love this is like at the running bit at the end of the show. Like Jimmy Kimmel is like, I ran out of time for Matt Damon. Yeah. Uh, well, we have the Heartland Mamas here. Unless you want to stick around for them, I'm sure they have some interesting thoughts on Whistleblower Gate as well. Like they got their coffee. Ready. I mean, I was I was a little nervous when you said that I was the opening act for the Heartland Mamas because that sounded a lot more fun than what I was going to bring to the table. Well, if you want to stick around the heartland mamas are only too happy to share the mic uh and uh, we'll make that decision as we take this break i will be right back after this today's ben jaromsky show was brought to you in part by chicago architecture center discover the breadth and majesty of chicago's architecture on a chicago architecture center bus tour from bungalows to Bauhaus, our expert docents will share the fascinating stories behind our city's architecture book your tour at architecture.org tours now if you'll excuse me i'm actually on a bus tour right now oh my look at that wonderful piece of architecture Get a special discount for Illinois residents from July 15th to August 15th. All Illinois residents get 50% off select walking tours. Visit architecture.org slash IL resident. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. There are people here I know who disagree with me about this proposal, and that's healthy in our democracy. But to be clear, doing nothing is not an option. Hey, everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Benny J, take it away. 
Heidi Henry in the studio. Uh, Marie Briel in the studio. Yeah, the Harlem Mamas have returned. Meredith Shiner said, oh, man, I got to meet the Harlem Mamas. So- I mean, I, they're the celebrities I never knew I needed to meet, and now I'm here. All right, well, Heidi Henry uh, and Marie, explain to Meredith and everybody else why you're called the Heartland Mamas. You want to take it away, Marie? Sure. Well, Heidi and I are tired of hearing all of the pundits and the media telling us that the Heartland folks are all conservative. We're all Trump voters. It's all red. And we started talking, you know, that's not the case. There's a lot of areas in Illinois, particularly, that are turning blue, that are purple, counties that we've won, that we haven't won before. So as we were talking, we decided that we would um, do something together. And then we were talking about presidential candidates, and we decided we needed a woman. Not just a woman, but a mother. Because who's better to take care of a dysfunctional nation? Just like a big family reunion or holiday. You got drunk uncle... (laughs) so-and-so in the corner. You got crazy Aunt Mary claiming that there's aliens coming out of the tree. You got the teenagers who are too busy on their phones to care about anything. So it's kind of a good example for our country. And we said it's about time we have some mamas to kick things into gear. And and, uh, Heidi, of course, ran uh, in the state Senate District 38 against Sue Resin, which Mm -hmm. is a red district. It is. right. It's really pretty purple. You know, it's actually way more purple than you think. Than you think. Well, what, did, what did Clinton get in that? Do you remember? I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. and I told you I wasn't a Clinton supporter because he was a dog. Yeah. Well. So my husband talked me into voting for Perot, the first. Oh time. my God. I know. Can you believe I would vote for that? Well, that, you know? well we're now uh, okay. I don't want to go back to ancient history, no, no, no. but I do. I will say this. I've always said that I thought that Bill Clinton was the luckiest guy in the world because Perot yes. was in a race. That, yep. But now you're proving the point. That when I ever say this, uh, my good friend McDumkey always says, well, Ben, you know, Perot took as many votes from Clinton as he took from George Bush. And you're proving sort of... Mi- I'm kind of proving mixed point, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I still think <laughs> there were, for every one of you, there were two who would have voted for Bush. And George Bush would have won re-election yep. in 1992 if not for Ross Perot. Yep. And so yep. everything that Clinton said that Democrats should do... Yes is really based on a fallacy. Everything that Clinton says about moving to the right to claim the middle is based on him having a third party candidate that siphoned off Republican votes. There, the, the, there is no middle because the middle is actually to the right. The, the middle's gone. The middle is owned by the right. So anytime somebody tells you, I, I, I mixed it up with, um, with my uh, state representative last night at a meeting because he is a move to the middle actually to the right Democrat who voted against RHA, who voted against Fix the Void. He voted against women and children. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. And and he's a newly elected person. And so when he wanted to come and talk to me about it, and I've been trying to reach out to him for, for months since he's been elected about these issues. Um, when you take those bread and butter Democratic value issues off the table, and the only thing you're willing to vote for as a Democrat is right to work legislation legislation and some union hand cherry picked union legislation and you're willing to throw domestic violence victims gun victims children school children uh and all women's rights under the bus i'm sorry i don't care where you live you're wrong and you're a dino so i completely agree we have a lot of dinos dinos uh running out in that area Democrats. I just figured out what it was. Democrats named those. It took me a while, Meredith. I'm a I, dino. I thought you were actually just saying that they were dinosaurs. That yeah, they were old white they, dudes they, who were out of touch. Yeah. Well, yes. yeah, that too. They're, yeah. they're the old 
the the good old boys. And my area <laughs> is is just swamped with them. I was like, Dino, Dino. Dino. I heard, yeah. I heard Rhino because I'm on the Tea Party uh, mailing list or email. I get all their emails. They're oh. talking about rhinos. This so it took me a while, but I figured out what a he, rhino was. He used Tea Party talking points to defend defend his position yesterday. Tea Party and. NRA talking points is how he was defending his vote to me yesterday. Do you know how irritating that is? I mean, I don't expect him to be a progressive like me, but I expect him to be a Democrat. Right. Well, this, again, uh, Meredith was just counseling me not to go political and just... Oh, sorry. Uh, and, well, but there is <laughs> political uh, ramifications to all this stuff. So before we go back to Whistleblower Gate, I think uh, the standard strategy of the Democratic Party when dealing with districts like yours yeah. is uh, to go right. And I remember this mm-hmm. from the 26 congressional campaigns uh, when the Democrats took back the House and Mayor Rahm at the time, he was, was yeah, Congressman Rahm, his strategy was to find Democrats who in many ways were just like Republicans yes. but happened to be running under the Democratic banner. Right. And that is how you win. So... You're talking about 2006, and I want to say something. It wasn't necessarily the thing that was so damaging in like a persistent way. wasn't necessarily the candidates he chose. It was that if you remember, Rom and Howard Dean were having this fight. So mm-hmm. Rom was the head of the campaign arm of House Democrats, and Howard Dean was running the DNC. And what Rom said was, "Is I want to invest in the races that I think I can win." And then I don't want to pay attention to the races that I can't. Whereas Howard Dean wanted to invest in a 50 state strategy, which was we shouldn't leave any state behind. Mm-hmm. Every state should have a functioning Democratic Party because you should compete and you should run races yeah. and you should um, make everything on the board competitive. Because when you think about all of these um, campaign organizations, whether it's the DNC, the DTRIP, or the DSCC, particularly in a world pre-Citizens United, they were the money clearing houses. And by divesting, you weakened all of these state legislatures. Right. And then all of those state legislatures drew maps. And now you have congressional maps that don't match the actual <laughs> population it's and how they're voting. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that, look... People talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and they talk about progressives um, from the last cycle. Not every district is going to be as liberal as AOC's. Like I hear this all the time when national reporters are talking about the Lipinski race, for example. Like Dan Lipinski is a Republican. I don't know that AOC could run in that district and win, but when you look at Lauren Underwood and Sean Caston, mm-hmm. who I would say are exactly. progressives, but they're not nearly as, as I actually far think AOC could win in that district. I, 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 I really, I, I, Sanders won that district over Hillary yes, Clinton in 2016. He did, and and here's the thing: in a primary, right. well, that's what in she would have. To, that's what AOC would have to win. AOC yeah. would have to win the primary. Winning the primary is tantamount to winning. All the I'm election. saying is that like every district isn't the I same, what you're and saying, yeah. and like when you look at 
the Democrats who won last cycle, I think that they were pretty true Democrats, but they sort right. of fell on a spectrum. And you should allow for a spectrum but because we, yeah. we shouldn't flatten it. So so the problem with Rom was not necessarily all of the candidates he picked in that moment. Yeah. I'm sure there have been many more problems with since Rahm. then. Uh, in the past 13 years, you can build a pretty long resume. It's that every state should have a democratic party. Well, that's part of why we decided to do what we do is because there are areas where we are building this bench that wasn't there before and we are mm -hmm. taking back areas and we want to reach those folks who feel like they are lost. We were in Princeton in Bureau County to do one of the first debates. Oh, this is good. And yeah. there's a young gentleman who's there and you know, he looks late 20s and comes in and no one had knew him and we're talking to folks and it turns out he had moved to Rochelle. He was a teacher and he was so excited to see Democrats because in Bureau, you'll see the Trump trucks, like Trump all over it. In Army trucks. Yeah, decked yeah, out in trucks. Republican in Trump talking points. Mm -hmm. His girlfriend had moved here from the city to be with him and uh, she was afraid for him to come to the Democratic headquarters. She was terrified, afraid somebody was gonna do something during the debate. That's insane that you should be able to, to that you would feel like that. Well, I think it's insane to be afraid in Princeton. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this is really interesting. My husband makes this point. Um, so I met him in DC, but he uh, grew up in Georgia uh, and he grew up in the district that's now the Lucy McBath district. But mm -hmm. when they were talking about the Ossoff race, when mm -hmm. Ossoff lost, um, you know, one of the things that got talked about in 2016 were yard signs, right? Uh, historic, or um, not historically, famously, infamously, the Hillary Clinton campaign wasn't giving out yard signs to we people. To they're, like, yeah. they, they're like, oh, this isn't important. And when my husband grew up, like he, when he was in high school, he made friends with someone and they made friends and they were the first Democrats each other had met. And there was like something about being able to put a yard sign like in your yard to say, hey, like I'm a Democrat, not everyone you know on this block or right. in this town as a Republican was really important. And that's why uh, places like Princeton, to have a county party office, Bureau County had never had one before. They do now. Kendall County had never had one before. And last year they opened one in Oswego and it's packed. So there's all these areas that are all right, let me ask you this. Uh, by the way, did I hear you correctly? You had to buy your Hillary Clinton's yard I did. Side? My husband, in 2016, he bought me a shirt for every day of the week. We had stemware and not one, but four Hillary Clinton signs, because I live in the country and I have a big yard. Yeah. <laughs> but by the way, she's the horse trainer, everybody. Remember, she's the horse whisper. whispers. Are you whispering the horse about uh, whistleblower gate? <laughs> you know, we were talking this morning. So. Uh, you, you and Mr. Red. Me uh, and Shane. Shane's my horse. Shane's a horse. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, so, um, uh, so when you talk about it's exciting that people are showing up. What are the, what are driving uh, people to show up at Democratic activities? What's motivating people? I, I really think that people are looking for answers that they're not getting from Fox News. And you know, when you talk about whistleblower gate, I went and tuned into local uh, Ottawa radio yesterday and could. Believe it's like, why do I turn this on? You yeah, know, <laughs> because it's so slanted. They were focusing on a poll that was done two months ago about impeachment instead of talking about today's issues to dissuade people from wanting impeachment. So, um, when when we talk about these bread and butter issues like health care, 
Healthcare is huge. We keep talking. We need to be sure we're talking that point. We need to be sure as Democrats we're talking about climate change because that is directly impacting the things that happen in our area. And when we get distracted from healthcare issues, economic issues, climate issues, and we start talking about uh, LGBTQ issues, which are super important, and we start talking about women's rights issues, specifically reproductive care, we start splitting our party down. And what we do know as a fact is that when we can win on climate and healthcare and education um, and economics, when we can win on those issues, those other ones will fall into place. As a feminist, as somebody who believes that sustainable feminism must pre come first before sustainable progressivism, I understand the fact that there are things that we need to do to put in place to make everything happen. It's like dominoes, you've got to set them up in order or, or building with blocks. So when I look at these issues out by us, when we get off, off track and we start talking about social issues instead of the issue of do you have your medication, do you have access to your doctor, can you get help? Out by us, people literally have died in labor because we've lost rural hospital systems. So we need to make sure that we keep those issues in front of people and we stop talking about um, things that we really can't control. We can't do a federal background check here in Illinois. We can't. We have no ability to do that. So when our local politicians are stuck on that issue, they forget that there is a bigger issue that we can win on. All right. Well, uh, let you get a uh, thought in you're about to say something and get your thought then i will get curious what meredith's response is go ahead well i think the biggest problem in the heartland in those purple areas in those reddish blue areas is that our messaging is incorrect as a party we are really bad we have allowed our terms to be co-opted into something that they're not And when you talk to people, we've been to Ohio and been to a Trump rally. We talk to people who are Republican supporters and Trump lovers. And when you take away the terms, when you take away socialism, when you take away and you simply talk about the facts, like how are the tariffs doing? What do you mean tariffs? Most of the time they don't know. And you start talking and go, well, are the farmers doing better or worse? Or are you doing better or worse? Well, the stock market's great. Yeah, the stock market's great, so I don't have much in stocks, do you? No. (laughs) Are you making more than you did four years ago? Those were questions we we asked when we were in Cincinnati. Those are people we stopped to talk to on the street that were Trump supporters. And once you start breaking down those terms that have been co-opted and made so derogatory by the right, people are like, no, that's why, yeah, we should really think about that. Oh, that's good. So it's it's reframing the conversation is huge. We are terrible on messaging, just terrible. I know you have thoughts. Look, I'm not gonna pretend like I have some of the firsthand on the ground knowledge that you all do, but I remember when I was here last time we were talking about healthcare and the debates because it was around one of the democratic debates. And I think one of the things that Democrats have really failed on, although I think Cory Booker made this point in in one of the many debates that I've watched, is that at the end of the day, every Democrat on that stage believes in universal health care. Yes. What do we mean by universal health care? That everyone should have access to health insurance and mm-hmm. that health care is a human right. 
there are disagreements right now about how to get there. But if you look at the past decade, Democrats were the ones who risked their careers to vote for the Affordable Care Act. Some of them lost. Democrats have time and time again fought against Republican assaults to this law. Is it succeeding the way it should? It is not. But right now you see candidates who are having a debate over whether or not we should have single payer or a public option. And that doesn't matter nearly as much as presenting that there is unanimity in mm-hmm. the Democratic Party, that people should have this access and that Republicans are trying to take it away. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't get hung up on buzzwords, right? Medicare for all doesn't mean anything Nothing. because it, it means something different to each candidate. Mm-hmm. What does mean something is I believe everyone should have access to health insurance and everyone on this stage, every Democrat in Congress for the most part, except for Dan Lipinski, is committed is committed to yeah. making sure that Americans in this country have access to health insurance because without insurance you don't get access to the kind of care that you need. When you talk yeah. about rural hospitals, yes. one of the most disappointing and distressing things is that 75% of the rural hospitals that have closed I think in the past decade have closed in states where Republican governors refuse to expand Medicaid just out of spite. And one of the things that's really concerning when you live in those rural areas is that uh, two out of five hospitals in rural areas are owned by the Catholic health care system, which allows them to deny reproductive health care. It allows them to restrict uh, birth control. We've actually had a lot of issues with that out in in, in, LaSalle. in, in LaSalle County. We have uh, OSF controls every hospital but one. Now, all right, Heidi, now let me get back to something that you were talking about, like the social issues that uh, are controversial, yes. social issues that can peel, uh, wedge issues basically is what we- they are. Wedge issues, They're very yes. emotional. You could peel people who would, uh, away from the Democratic Party. Right. Uh, Democrats absolutely can say, let's just agree uh, to disagree and move on and concentrate on the things that we really believe in, even if there's some nuanced differences between us and some of these other issues. But you know, and this is what I was getting at uh, earlier with Meredith in terms of whistleblower gate, you know, it's not like you, it's like the, it's, it's not as though the Republicans are just going to be sitting back right. and allowing you to say, oh yeah, we're going to have our moment here. They were going to force someone like you yeah. to 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 tell people what's your position right. on abortion. I mean, they'll yes. that's, they won't call it reproductive rights. Okay? Right, abortion. So well, and I think that's part of the, the the way Democrats need to reframe the abortion debate. It is not about abortion. It is about access to women's health care. And when we take that fight word out and we start talking about access to health care, I'll. Out where I live, we lost a, a hospital in Streeter. So now it's over an hour to get in to, to give birth somewhere. And God help you if you're having problems or you're having a home birth that goes badly or, you know, it comes the baby comes early or anything. Anything can happen. And the thing with limiting our access to reproductive care through Planned Parenthood, which started in my lifetime, and was in the basement of every county health department dispensing simple reproductive health care to young and poor women. That's where they started, and that's where they belong. When I was down in Springfield in Sangamon County, they're now giving out, um, I can't remember the name of the pill, to prevent HIV. 
the spread of the disease, mm-hmm. the deadly, deadly disease of, H- of HIV and AIDS. So they're giving away the free, the other pill, as they call it. And I can't think of the name Trivada. of it. Travada, yeah. So they're giving it away to protect the people that live there, thanks be to God. I mean, how wonderful that we have something that can protect vulnerable people. Why is it that that's okay, but you can't, you can go there and get discounted or free uh, birth control, even at our health, at our health department, but we can't have a specific measure to help prevent unwanted and unplanned pregnancies, which is the cause of abortion. You know, so that's taking back our verbiage as women and calling it healthcare. It is just part of being who we are. But I wanted to tell you that I was in Kansas last week and in Kansas, they elected a democratic governor and I was able to talk to one of their legislators there. Part of their package going into the election was to expand Medicaid because they were at the risk of losing 16 16 rural hospitals. Now, I had never been to Kansas before. The word vast and Kansas go together. I mean, oh my God, it's just grass forever. It's beautiful. But you get to a hospital in the middle of nowhere, and it's no bigger than my indoor riding arena that I ride Shane in. Seriously, it's 60 by 135 is my indoor. And their hospital system is about that size. And it's in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by tens of thousands of acres and can take hours to get to for people. And it's gonna go away because when they elected this governor and they only had 41% of their legislature, none of the Republicans came on board and they didn't take Medicaid expansion. And by the way, like this was free money. The first few years were 100% funded by the federal government. And I believe that um, through 2021, it was more than 90%. So it was just turning down free money. Sitting there, but they don't do a good job of messaging. You have to understand the biggest employer in Kansas is Coke Brothers and Coke subsidiaries. But after that, ranching is, ranching and healthcare are the top employers. Look, you invited me onto the show weeks ago to talk about something that was women's health related. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but Bye. I do think, <laughs> no, I'm, I, it's too long of a conversation yeah. to start now, but I, I, I do think that we need to have a more honest conversation about what access to women's health care means, because for so many years, like the conversation around women's health care has been completely vilified by yes. people who hate women. Right. Planned Parenthood isn't just giving abortions to everyone. That's oh, not the title. Ten, the title 10 money that they get is to provide health care at low cost to people who need it most and now when you see states like Missouri where they only have one clinic left like this is a huge problem and people are driving for hours to go there and that clinic is at risk of shuttering every woman in every state in this country should have equal access to the kind of health care she needs Mm -hmm. to live a healthy life and that looks different for different women but we should have that fundamental belief and I think that the conversation that frames women's health care is just rife with misogyny. Yes. And it's left us in this place where women are sick, where women are dying, where we have higher maternal death rates, particularly if you're a woman of color oh gosh, than most yes. other countries. And why is that? And why is that okay? And to, to yeah. have an honest conversation about what women health care means, you know, it should be part of the larger health care conversation. If people mm-hmm. believe, as they do so passionately, 
passionately uh, that healthcare should be a human right. Well, women are human too. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's it's got to be part of the healthcare care debate. Period. And I'd like to throw in there with what you said, autonomous. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing. You know, we have the right to control our bodies. You know, so we should be able to do that. Decide what's best for us. Like you said, exactly. And we just want the ability. It doesn't mean we're going to make everybody. That's the biggest argument I hear is, well, then everybody will get an abortion. Really? Seriously? Well, let me ask like, you this. If you, uh, you ran, you ran for yes. state Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this issue used against you? Was the issue, the abortion no. issue used no. against you? I, I told you. Ben, the only issues used against me were by my own party. So. You have told me that a few times on the air. And no, and uh, I have I ever elaborated? No. no. Uh, so, but we're talking about in the general election. Yeah. No. It um, it never came up, and when the vote came up after, it was completely a non-issue in my race. Uh, education funding was an issue. Uh, I have to tell you, the person I ran against would never. She would never debate me. We only got to speak in the same place twice and I, I mopped the floor with her twice um so if i may say if so i may myself. say so well that's <laughs> it was uh uh yeah you know i was i would just love to see uh, the three of you are speaking so passionately about this issue and i would just love am to i an see honorary it. mama now yeah, yeah. yeah. Like an honorary <laughs> mama we would love that doris davenport is an honorary <laughs> mama is. too uh but i would love to see somebody just do the counterpunch that you're doing right here. The counterpunch yeah. in a debate. Boom. D- Democrats seem they're so scared of this issue. They and run that's away. why we go back to reframing the argument, reframing, taking back well, what we're trying to accomplish as Democrats, as human beings, decency, empathy. The F- I mean, oh, it's that's. So um, NARAL, which is one of the biggest uh, pro-choice women's health care advocacy groups in the country, just celebrated its 50th anniversary. And last night there was this a big, big event in New York and lots of like famous political women and celebrities. They all attended this event and they had different panels. And one of the things that I was really interested to see um, when I was looking at people who were posting from the event, um, they had a conversation with the president of NARAL and um, a researcher from Media Matters, and um, they showed a graph of where people get their news and information about abortion, and a plurality of it comes from anti-choice conservative websites, yes. and then that information gets amplified on Facebook. And so I've been having a lot of conversations lately about whether or not it makes sense to engage in these conversations because by engaging in them you might bring more attention to the people who are promoting the propaganda but the problem is is that if we don't have honest conversations about the reality of women's health care the reality of abortion the reality of loss then we let all of the information come from these websites that are Mm anti-science because this is one of the things that we really need to fight to frame it. It's not just anti-woman because some people don't care about women. Like the heartbeat bills. It's all of the heartbeat bills that have been coming out, not any in the last couple months, but we had an onslaught of them with every state you can imagine that was a red state. And Heidi's mom was actually an OBGYN nurse. Mm -hmm. And the the best part is exactly what you said. They frame it as a heartbeat bill when actually it's not technically a heartbeat. It's the electrical impulses because it doesn't 
isn't able of molecules to slamming together yes so they're claiming that it's a heartbeat but it actually isn't medically and scientifically well in, in i'm i'm just yeah. oversimplifying that but but you know it's it's just energy and it's not a baby right so when we talk about it is are you really a mama are you a mom no not well a fur mama? Mama? yeah for baby mama for i mm, i it's very complicated. I'm sorry. So, so I, had, I, had, I, had a, yeah, I we could we could throw down about complicated stuff, <laughs> but and I have furry grandchildren, so I just you know, and I have no problem with that. I love them, but as as a person who struggled with fertility issues, I'm really struggled. My kids are eight years apart, mm-hmm. and then and then. And then as I'm on the table having my daughter after struggling to have her, the doctor makes my husband sign off on my tubal. If I hadn't had a spinal, I would have gotten up and beat him. <laughs> but I couldn't oh, move at that husband. moment. I, not him. Okay. Dr. Wong. Who, oh, Dr. Wong. Okay. He was wonderful, yeah. and I loved him very but much. But then there was a law that said that you had to have your husband's approval yeah. if you wanted to have well, a ligation, and that was 22 years ago. 24. 24 almost, yeah, 24 years ago. So, you know, here's, here, here am I. I'm, I'm numb from the neck down you know having this another emergency c-section after struggling to have children are you sure you want to have don't want to have any more do you think i want to put myself through this you know do you really think that i want to put my family through this every time no i'm done if stan has to sign that paper then then do it stan sign it quickly because if you don't i'm doing it myself (laughs) wow well i you know i can figure it out um, so I know you have something you want to say, Meredith, so say it. Um, look, I think that when we talk about women's health care, we should have conversations that are scientifically grounded, that are grounded in reality, that are not only pro-woman, but pro-family. Yes. Um, so when we talked a few weeks ago about you wanting to have me on, it was because I had written an open letter to House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy that had run in the Daily Beast because... Um, a little more than a month ago, I guess it was five or six weeks ago now, uh, I went into preterm labor and I was five months pregnant and we lost our son and Mm -hmm. he was born alive. But the House Republicans have promoted this anti-science, anti-woman and anti-family legislation called the Born Alive Survivors Protection Act. And they post pictures of healthy six months babies and no woman is 14 months pregnant, wanting to have an abortion. 99% of abortions that happen in this country happen before 21 weeks. No one, no woman is walking around nine months pregnant, not wanting a child. They've designed legislation to remedy a problem that doesn't exist. And it would just put the doctors and nurses who helped me and helped my family on our worst day in prison because that's what they want to do is they want to send doctors and nurses to jail because they want to promote this reality to scare people to scare people who live in communities like yours to make them think that there are these big bad liberals who live in cities and want to murder babies guess what if you were nine months pregnant delivered a baby in a street and left that baby in a dumpster you would go to prison because you would actually be prosecuted they're not designing bills to fix problems what they are doing is trying to scare people they're trying to own the conversation by framing women doctors nurses and criminals by building an alternate reality that doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and if we don't 
have these conversations, if we don't create voices and faces of people who are real, um, like one of the reasons I did it, I used to be a congressional reporter. Every top political reporter and editor in Washington knows me. And they shared, they saw the short story and they shared the story and House Republicans might try to put this bill on the floor again. They probably will because everything else is going to garbage, right? Um, but I wanted them to think about my face before they did because it's not about point scoring. It's not about characterizing this as something to energize a base. When one party makes their position anti-science, they try to make it so that the media, when they're promoting pro-science stories, are anti-conservative. And that's destructive because science isn't both sides. And you see it with climate change. You see it with women's yes. health. And it's time for us to be honest and about where we are. Women ha we have to stop vilifying women for having reproductive issues, period. Having struggled with them under certain legislation, the things that I went through, uh, I would have ended up in jail for something my body just could not do on its own. So, um, you know, when I read about the ectopic telling people that they can take an ectopic... Okay, that is absolutely the most bananas... <laughs> Well, okay, and and here's what's so bananas about it, and this was what was so upsetting. So this, so there was a um, pro-life propagandist who posted this video to Facebook where she was saying that there is no circumstance under which a woman's life is at risk during a pregnancy, and they're trying to say that atopic pregnancies aren't dangerous to women. And so then Facebook had this new fact-checking team that went to fact-check this video, and then you had Ted Cruz and Josh Howley and two other Senate Republicans have yes. Facebook take the fact check down because the fact check was anti-conservative because conservatives have positioned themselves as anti-science. Yeah. That's so Facebook messed take it down? up. They took it down. They took the fact check down. But so the video is still out there yes. as propaganda. So the, the video remains, but the but fact check is gone. But not the information so, associated. So we have, yeah. we have all this... Zuckerberg. No, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We have all this misinformation out there. And the problem is, is it gets women killed. It, it kills us because we can't have the health care that we need. Well, and one of the things that is so important that ties in with that is the fact that a lot of areas don't get shows like this. When we were driving down to Ohio, it was all conservative. It was all conservative radio. We heard a sheriff's deputy say that if any of those protesters at the Trump rally step out of line, Actually, they're coming with. We're coming with billy clubs, and we'll beat you down. That's this is what people are hearing, and they don't have access to broadband. They don't. Cell service is often sketchy. You don't have serious. The one and thing so we noticed you're trapped with a lack of information. What we noticed when we went south to go see to, to Cincinnati and to lots of Jesus signs. <laughs> when you drive down sixty five through Indiana, every thirty miles there's a God installation, an angry, vengeful God installation. <laughs> either in art or in um, in word, in wording. And I've never felt so threatened in my life until I was, we went to stop, I forgot my toothbrush, and we're in the Walgreens, and a guy's got a Bushmaster strapped to his back. I'm like, for Walgreens in Kentucky, I really wanted to go home. I really do think that we should build a wall between Illinois and Indiana and make Indiana pay for it. I'm totally okay with that. Yeah, I think we'd be better off. Uh, all my Hoosier friends out there, those uh, thoughts and opinions are Meredith Shiners, and they yeah. all not reflect the larger opinions of the Ben Jarofsky Show. We're going to take a brief break Sorry. and come right back. 
Today's Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by Green Element Resale. They're located at 6241 North Broadway in Chicago, and people, they are amazing. Monday through Saturday, 11 a.m. until 7 p.m. Sundays, 12 until 7 p.m. Seven days a week, books, furniture, appliances, lamps, clothes. It's a thrift shop, but it's the only thrift shop in Chicago that helps bring you the Ben Jarofsky Show. I'm looking at pictures right now of Green Element. Oh, there's categories. I see categories. Everybody, you can get categories right now at Green Element Resale. Better get there fast. I only see one categories. all right? So, also, I'm looking here. I'm looking at Green Element Re. Oh, there's a scarf. Guys, a scarf right now, greenelementresale.com, and uh, you can call them as well, uh, Green Element Resale. Let's see if I can find the phone number of these guys. They're at 6241 North Broadway in Chicago, right between uh, Devon and Granville. It's a fantastic place. It's greenelementresale.com. Hang tight. I'll get you the number. Maybe you can call them up and say, hey, uh, hang, hold on to that scarf for me. Hold on. Just, I'll get the number. One second. Green Element Resale is awesome, guys. 6241. Here we go. 773-942-6522. It's Green Element Resale. Go there and save tons of money. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. We're at the end of a show, a great show. It has been a very moving show. Uh, the Heartland Mamas are in the studio, uh, Heidi Henry, uh, Murray Briel. Meredith Shiner stuck around after uh, giving also, a... Also a Heartland Mama she's now. She's now an honorary Heartland Mama. Yeah. Uh, she's got a badge to show it and everything. Uh, it That's seems right. like your, your, your numbers grow every time you come to the show. You, do, you enlisted Doris Davenport the last time you are here. So before we head out the door... Uh, Heidi, you got any uh, messages you want to give, any promotions you want to give, any websites, et cetera, and so forth? Sure. HeartlandMamas, M-A-M-A-S dot com. Uh, we're working on a four-part series of um, the Great Red Divide Tour. We were, we did, I did 2,000 miles through the Midwest and the Great Plains talking to um, people, public servants, politicians, people that own businesses, lots and lots of farmers, a couple of ranchers found out that we're actually related to two people that work cows on horses with horses every day. I had no idea. Um, and talking to them about the issues that hit them right there in those red states. And like I, I related some of the of what I heard in Kansas and the people in Kansas are terrified about their health care. They are really in, an, in a bad place right now. Um, in in Iowa, we're going to talk about Iowa tomorrow when we when we record, um, and the the problems that Joni Ernst has manufactured for her state with her horrible lack of leadership, um, and the people that I ran into that are running against her coming up. She said that she's so focused on uh, ethanol that she can't read a whistleblower report. <laughs> it's like nine pages. pages. Yeah, nine yeah. pages. Guys, it's right here. You can just you don't even have to read the whole report. It's New York Times made us put Sean it on the Kasten front page. Had tweeted that he read it on his way walking from the car yeah. to the It office. was pretty quick. It's I, not like this one, okay? Oh, right. The, the Mueller report, which of course I've read, by the way. Uh, well, like, do you have like political lit like bookmarking your pages in the Mueller report? Because that's that's yeah. a scene. <laughs> Let's not let that get out, all right? Well, there was a long time where I was obsessively reading sections of the Mueller report on this show, uh, and I think I enjoyed the Mueller report a little too much. Do you know there's a Mueller report book bookclub.com so you can actually form a Mueller Report book club if you want. Right. So, but I did I, not know that. In my travels, I was invade, invited to the steak fry. I brought you some some a little bit of stuff there. And I got to hear 19 different candidates speak and 
And uh, when we were at the Iowa State Fair, it was like the last day of the Hickenlooper campaign, but he yeah. was giving out koozies. So I'm sure I those know, will be a that. collector's <laughs> item that no one will want one day. You've got a lot of Tom Steyer it stickers. Goes in a Tom well, yeah. you know, here's he's the, got a lot of money to print the yeah, stickers. I was say, yeah. Here's the interesting thing about uh, I was actually a guest of Kamala Harris, who stood me up. Mm. <laughs> oh wow! Oh wow! She's not. So, she's gonna lose that Harlan Mama vote. Oh yeah. <laughs> not necessarily. I I would vote for a turnip over. <laughs> you know, for, oh, for over Donald John? Yeah. yeah okay. So, um, but there was no merch at her place except for a couple of stickers and a waterlogged sign, so I brought that back. Um, but you had to pay for Biden stuff. You could get pretty much anything you wanted from Williamson. Some of it had a, had a small fee. But I noticed that... Um, Oh, yeah, there you go. I, go I tried to bring Even the button weirds me out. Like, also, like, if you're wearing that, are you trying to send a signal to the world that you're an anti-vaxxer? Does it look I, like Tori well, Amos to it, you from the 80s, from the 90s? I can oh, see yeah. that. Well, it, her, her booth was all pink and light blue, and you could buy a selection of her books. Wait, there. I'm sorry, is this Iowa or Illinois? This, this is Iowa, Iowa. Okay. yeah. So. All right, we have run out of time. We're going to shut down this show for the day. We have some bonus uh, episodes coming up, and we have, uh, don't forget, we're going to have our trivia contest. Are we going to put that on the internet, D? Uh, it's going to be live-streamed about live streamed. shooting for 5 o'clock. Five Hopefully o'clock. we'll get it by then. All right, very good. I want to thank Meredith Shiner. I want to thank uh, Heidi Henry, Murray Brio, Ramana Hussein. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, they're the Heartland Mamas. You can follow them. They have a podcast. They're super cool. They come on my show. Whatever I can get them to drive down that road to Chicago. I really we, appreciate it. We love it. it. We love coming. Thanks for having <laughs> us. And I love you. You're amazing. You're it's okay. a lot of love in the show. And of course, how about a little love to Dennis. the man, the myth, the legend, Woo. the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. D, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you on Tuesday, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, chicago.suntimes.com, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. Downloaders, you know we live stream this show, right? It's true. Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time. Once again, at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. And, hey, we uh, Facebook video live stream the program as well, at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show, on both Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, we're going to do a little bonus today. We're calling it for 10 trivia points, news mixed with trivia, and Ben's add-on questions. It's going to be a good time. Check it out. We'll see you soon.